a little bit more animation in him. Maybe there was a little more coffee in him. I don't know. Maybe it was just he was in front of these people and he was afraid to fuck up too bad because, you know, he'd have a little uh, episode on his hands, which was never a concern because for the most part, this was an audience that just loved the man. They couldn't say enough nice things to him, about him, or around him. It was, in a word, sickening. Well, but, that, you know, he did he did well. However, mm-hmm. as you've already noted, I think, on, on the Paracast forums, he spoke maybe a total of um, 15 minutes, and then for the next two hours, you know, it was all, you know, the, the comedian's equivalent of, so where are you from? You know, it was just yeah. a question and answer with fans. So it's kind of hard to screw that up, actually. Let me ask you, did anybody else ask a question like you, David, you, Jeremy, or one of your crew? Never. Mm, you know, a lot. Of, well, no, there probably Dave were. Actually, Dave actually donned a wig and uh, and covered his uh, mustache with his finger at one point to skip across the room and ask a question from a, a few different locations and pretend <laughs> to be different people. It was quite exciting, actually. George, I listen to you every night, George, and you're just the best. And I have this weird light thing in my hand, and I'm rubbing it on my nose. And, and George, remember when I called you that time? And Let's hit the button. Tom, hit the button, Tom. <laughs> Hit the button. We can't hit the button. George, and I really love you, George, and I know I sort of sound like Catherine Hepburn, but I'm shaking like a leaf in the Siberian winter wind. I mean, you know, the problem is, of course, I'm not making that up. There was a crazy little woman who sounded just like that. It was just terrifying. It's weird. That wasn't you? No, dude, that was no, not No, that wasn't you. Oh, all right. No, no she yeah, was and, short and, and scary. I asked a question, I or you know, a couple of questions in, in one fell swoop, and Dave asked two questions two separate times. I don't right. think anyone else. Tell me well, about well, the questions and the answers. Well, uh, go ahead. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> now you you go ahead with yours now. And I'll I, my show favorite them. was Dave, just Dave, just Dave's dainty attitude. Reminded me of Walter, you know, trying to like contain himself and play the role <laughs> of a normal guy. You know, he's like, "I'm um, George. Excuse me, I have a question." Like all nice and polite. Um, yeah, hi, George. And then he asked his question. I think it was. Um, uh, I what asked was him about your question. I remember your second question. I don't remember your first no, no, question. Yeah, no. first question was: We all heard your Jacques Vallée interviews recently, and he was smiling. Ooh, thank you. Uh, I'm just curious: What is your favorite Jacques Vallée book, and why? And his response was: I really like Strata, Gem. It's about a gem modeled in the Macintosh rendering software, StratoVision. I love that software because it runs very fast. What did he really say? I'm sorry about that. He just started pulling, he pulled food out of his pocket. He was pulling little bits of, like, White Castle sliders out of his pocket. He was arranging them on the table in front of him, right? And he starts pulling out these little vials of, like, glowing liquid, which I think was designed to sort of make the audience kind of wonder if he was, you know, being on the level or not. And he said, well, I'd have to consider the ghosts that are in that answer. And I was like, what the fuck is he talking about? And so he starts to, he's got these glowing little beakers, and he's like, I'm all set up. So he starts, he's like, well, you know, what would Jacques Vallée do if you asked him that? And I thought, well, Jacques Vallée wrote the books. I'm sure he's not going to say he's got a favorite and why the man is the author of the books. But, you know, that was what the monologue going on in my head what was going on in George's head. I think George was playing out a monologue in his head, except he was doing it in front of the audience because he was confused about the current state of his reality. He actually um, couldn't answer the question, so he made up something. No, 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 no. He, no, he, he referenced a couple of older valet books and 
I think he said he liked them because they're not made of cheese. And, you know, he was in that movie, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. And, uh, you know, <laughs> he likes to eat snails because all the Frenchmen do that, you know. Yeah, something like that. And then uh, he started, I, I forget, there was some reference to, you know, dimensional beings and uh, the extra... Uh, extra, what was it? Oh, yeah, it was the extra therapy hypothesis, which I didn't know what the hell that meant. Aren't you glad you asked? You know, the real question is, how did we get into the George Nori? No, don't even go there. Shut up. Shut up. That's the question. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. Don't even go there, you crazy bastard. I believe it was sold out, wasn't it? I mean, it was impossible. It was definitely not sold out. No, it was not impossible. It was not. I basically, I used a quantum vortex. It's very simple. It's called you I, walked in, they didn't stop you. No, it was, it was an older technique. It's a little more nefarious than that. And shut up, Jerry. Jerry, you see. <laughs> oh, but never mind. In, in the end, in the end, uh, basically, the the more interesting question, of course, was the second question I asked him, which was a veiled reference to him having "You shall not be named" on the show and uh, having mentioned my name along with Ritzman's name on his program more than a couple of times in a you know slanderous context, a libelous context. Excuse and me, I, George, it's me again. Hey George, it's me again. He said, Oh, only one question every thirty days or something like that. That's what he tells his girlfriend. Um but uh, he, uh, he, you know, it, it came down to me saying, you know, well, if it, let's say you had a guy on your show mentioning a guy who was an image analyst and mentioning him in a negative, derogatory way, would you let that image analyst come on the show and make his case? Well, of course I would. I'm fair. And have you noticed that my mustache has its own zip code? And it was like, okay, great. Then I'm going to talk to your producer. And I went to go sit down. He's like, well, are you good? And I just, like, grabbed the microphone back, and I went, I'm the best, baby. And, uh, Did and you really say it. that? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I have it all in bits and, and little digital bits on an SD card. I'll tell you it what, before we have too many bits, would you explain what our first segment is going to be like? You had a round table, a real yeah, yeah. table in the round. Yeah, we went into the uh, gallery room where they were showing the... Uh, the abductee art, or no, the exp- I shouldn't say that, experiencer art. There was actually one guy in the room, uh, Jeremy, you remember when you, right when you walked in the room, right to the right, there was a guy that had like these, uh, I guess they were like lithographs or something, in frames. Or actually, I have some, I took some snapshots of this art. It, it was really, really good. And Ritzman walked in and looked at it and went, wow, that's pretty damn cool. So there actually was some neat art in the room this time, but uh, this was kind of like the place to go to get a couple of quiet moments. We, we grabbed a um, bunch of chairs, and there was a little round like coffee table thing, so I sat my digital recorder down in the middle of that, and we just started talking, basically, uh, Dr. Sue, Dr. Vaney, Dr. Ritzman, and myself. We basically just had at it for a while. We were talking for a bit, impressions of the conference, and little anecdotes, our thoughts about things that we'd heard, and um, then, I mean, we had mentioned the fact that Bruce McAbee gave a, a presentation that I don't know that any of us found really compelling. It was very surprising. He was focusing on some of the stuff from, you know, there was that uh, Bob Collins with Rick Doty, Richard Doty, Jackie Doty, Jerky Beef Doty, <laughs> Chicken Head Doty, whatever that guy's name is. I always get confused. So uh, McAbee had had interactions or apparently had interviewed the, the hawk 
and had this, I have to say, I love Bruce. I, I totally respect him. This presentation was not his best moment. And we were kind of surprised by what he talked about. It really didn't seem to fit in to what he's all about in many ways. And we talked about that a little bit. You all hear that. And then Bruce came walking by, recognized, uh, recognized us, and sat down, started talking to us. And it turned into this impromptu interview with Maccabee that actually uh, was really interesting. What do you think, Jeremy? The thing I found interesting about it was that the story, I mean, here's Bruce McAbee. He's got decades upon decades of experience in this field. He could pick any story out of his ass and tell it. And what did he decide to do? He walks into the room, he sits down with us, and for hours, I mean, he addresses the Hawk thing for a little bit, but then he spontaneously launches into Gulf Breeze, which was the exact thing that we were talking about at lunch the day before in private. Jeff Ritzman, for about 10 years now, has always wondered why Bruce McAbee was at Gulf Breeze in a little, you know, I think white van with a satellite dish on it with a bunch of guys in lab coats. And apparently a, what they called Tinkerbells, a small ball of light came up out of the water and went, you know, made a V-line right for the van, went right over the van and shot off. And Maccabee's never apparently spoken about this. And Richmond, for like 10 years, has wondered about it. And he just came right out and started telling that story. And what was interesting was, you know, Richmond's take was like, you know, who is this guy, Bruce Maccabee, that he's doing this? Is he really, you know, working for someone else or something? You know, because, you know, we all start to think these things eventually about people when they are in situations like that. But, no, he was quite honest and upfront with exactly what he was doing there. And I, to me, that was just such an odd synchronicity that it it was it almost was breathtaking in a way and i'll tell you what if you want to find out more it's coming up on the powercast and, and the culture of contact cast oh, i guess that's ah, thingy <laughs> i have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore ray perkins a reclusive veteran burned out from the gulf war lives tortured by relentless perplexing nightmares Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockaway. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes... The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
interesting things I've noted about the uh, X conference this year is that there actually has been very little discussion of disclosure, uh, at least in the sessions that I've sat through. Um, disclosure almost seems like an afterthought. People are, are sort of peddling philosophies and, uh, and so, some new agey stuff or discussing old stories. Uh, I think it's fair to say that we were a little sort of surprised, for example, by Dr. Maccabee's presentation. I ended up focusing on something that I, it's hard for me to say because I really respect Bruce Maccabee. I think that perhaps he might have chosen a better topic for discussion this year, something better or more substantial than talking about you know, the aviary stuff and or the hawk. I mean, he basically put up the, the book that Robert Collins did with Richard Doty and said, I'm going to talk about this. And I thought, well, what are you going to talk about? I mean, you know, you got two words, bullshit, end of discussion. And he went in this very long, detailed description of stuff in the book. Uh, or it wasn't even stuff in the book. It was, you know, his interactions with this person called the hawk. Where we know that this is all just sort of nonsense at this point. You know, none of that has any usefulness. So why do you think, uh, what do you think Maccabee focused on that? I have no idea. I really don't. I mean, that's a long put to bed story as far as I'm concerned. Right, right. I was kind of disappointed that we didn't get footage or, you know, but that's not really that this kind of venue for that. I mean, like I said, this is more like the political end of things and all that. So I can understand that. But why not something else besides that long put to bed story? I don't know. Maybe he's just bored of doing the same presentations and wanted to sort of branch out and try something different. Well, the problem is it wasn't really a presentation. He had these slides up on the screen with huge amounts of text. He's reading the text verbatim. That's not a presentation. That's dictation. You know, I mean, certainly whenever you learn about effective presentation styles, certainly using software like PowerPoint, you always realize, you know, one of the first things I would teach people when I do teach people is, you know, keep text to an absolute minimum. You're putting up sort of general ideas, capsule ideas, and then the whole point of you being there is to expand upon them. Yeah, it was PowerPointless. I mean, like, you didn't need to have it. Yeah. Okay, you could have just told us the story. Well, so. oh, yeah, I love that. PowerPointless. That's really good, right? Because, you know, what happens? You're reading ahead. Right. You're not listening to him. You're sort of reading ahead to see what he's going to say. That's not an effective presentation. Right. I think your CIA briefings would have been a lot more interesting to hear, like, in detail. Yeah. I think that would have been far more interesting. And he got onto that at the end. That was big news back in the day when that came out that he had actually done that. And I think it would have been interesting to see. I mean, he generally said that people in the CIA were. They were like, really? Well, we'll dig into this. It's on our own agency. Let's dig into this and see what. Well, okay. Did anybody come back to you? Did yeah. What was the follow-up? I did. I did find something a little weird. Check this out. But you didn't really get much of that. That would have been a far more interesting thing, I think, would be for for people to hear here, especially. There was an interesting uh, set of things that John Alexander, I guess he's a retired general in the military, strange character, odd man, very odd man. Actually, I think I'm going to say this with tongue in cheek. Uh, if you were going to make an argument for reptilians as humans. He's got that look. And then there's the whole thing about his wife. We're not going to go there. But um, <laughs> the thing about it, I mean, there were certain things he said that, A, I found really fascinating. Some of them I found to be quite, you know, sort of in that realm of disinformation, this, you know, an idea that the government doesn't care about this. He said that. He said, you know, if you think the government cares, they don't. Now, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't make sense because he prefaces that with, yeah, there are, there are these genuine unknown, for instance, two-story tall football field in length or longer triangular craft that have made appearances over the U.S. every now and then. 
And uh, so apparently nobody is in, would be interested in that at all in the military or in the government. Uh, I don't buy it. I don't buy it, but, uh, you know, like I was telling you, I'm not so certain. I guess, God, am I just the optimist for humans in this group or what? But I'm not so certain that he doesn't believe that because he's, you know, he's actually talking to these people and friends with them, you know, presumably a lot of them. And so maybe he just takes them at their word when they lie to him because he thinks that he's in the know, you know? Yeah. So he's one of those guys they would trust if they knew something. They'd tell camp, you know. You know, I think part of the problem here is that there's an assumption, and this came up with our interview with Bassett, that, you know, okay, let's assume these are this is extraterrestrial in nature and it's interacting with us and there's some section of our government that's interacting with them. You know, but let's assume it's like, you see, you know, we have to just, you know, take the stance that we know it's extraterrestrial. It's like, no, you're already off to a false start there. And if you're going to build everything on that house of cards then it's not going to last very long because there is nothing to point to that on the Paracast. He brought up percentages. Well, there's X percent of it being, you know, it's 95% that it's extraterrestrials. It's like, and, and we stopped on that. I think actually Gene stopped and said, you know, what, what are you basing this on? What's your, you know, what's your math on that? How do you back that up, that statement? And so I think that the problem is when you start from that set of assumptions and you build everything, you even choose guests based on their support of that assumption then you're going to get something that's biased. And everything is biased by definition, but you're going to get something that's biased in an unproductive way. And it's just going to lead you off into sort of other weird tangents. Like you go to the merchandise room, right? And, you know, what do you see? It's a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Oh, look, I have a, it's the conspiracy cafe. You know, um, it, to me, it doesn't feel like much more than a UFO event. And, Jeff, you've been to a lot of these over the years. You know, how would you differentiate this from a UFO event? It's not. The typical UFO event that I've been to is somebody telling an account of what they've seen, what right. they've experienced, or, you know, some retired military guy who wants to come out and, and show or, or describe what he's seen or been exposed to with it. Whereas here, it's kind of... It's not even that. No. You know, it's... Well, it's the over... The pervasive thing of, you know, the government knows all this and they're not telling us and we want to find out how. And here's how we can do it. That was last year. This year, I haven't attended enough lectures to know. But right. I mean, a lot of stuff, and they, they call it the insiders. I didn't really... Did anybody get that? That, that, that no. that's the insider? I didn't get that. I don't I know why they called the it that. Yeah. You know? I mean, this was this was more along the lines of... Uh, I mean, Dolan, of course, was probably great. I didn't see it, but uh, I would assume his thing was probably good. So his wife told us he was talking more about the abduction scenario. Yeah, and the negative aspects of what disclosure would then bring. Right. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we have to be talking about. Is Absolutely. Yeah. You know? But I don't see that with a lot of the other speakers that were here. I think part of the problem is that there's some unacknowledged uh, scheme going on here where you've got like a Michael Sala and a Stephen Greer and Alfred Weber who have mapped out exactly what's going to happen once this ET contact happens. They've got this whole doctrine of, you know, you know, Steve's got classes that you can take to be an ambassador, for instance, and, and Weber has written the doctrine that's going to, you know, become the politics of the future when we trek out into space like a, you know, science fiction show. So if you keep going back now, now what's Bassett? You know, what's Bassett's role in that? Well, his role is to play the rationalist. He's the guy who says, yeah, that stuff's way far out there maybe for you, but so we'll get to that later, we'll get to that later, but let's just deal with what we have now. If he's working with these people, then in the back of his mind, he's got to think that he's sort of playing the role of, um, you know, almost the army recruiter or something who 
you know, it sounds logical, presents you with something that you might want to do, but then you get into it and you realize, well, it's actually, <laughs> you know, something you don't want to be a part of, something that you don't want to, that, that's not realistic for a life. And, and let's note something about, you just rattled off some names like Weber and Solace and these other people. Now, notably, none of those guys are here this time. Michael Solace is not here. I didn't see him. Did you? He's not here. Alfred Weber? Is he here? I don't think no, that's here. what I mean. I, I think Bassett sort of knows. He has to have known from the last time when they were here that that didn't go over so well. So let's pretend that that's, you know, some sort of potential future thing. You know what I mean? So it's not like he's like sugarcoating what this all is about. And what this all is about is the Weber stuff, is the Salas stuff. Because all of it, you know, does depend on this being an ET presence. Like I said, it's a false premise. But they don't just have a false premise of an ET presence here. They've got a false premise upon which they have built an entire future That's exactly structure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And he just found out in the last conference that we ain't buying that future structure, right? But everything they've done is built on that future structure. So he has to scale back and go, well, just don't ignore, ignore this. Ignore over here for now. <laughs> this might unfold. Just ignore it now. And he doesn't really believe that. He really believes that is the hedging your bets? I mean, is that what that is? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's going to the lowest common denominator, just like Simone said and what Nori said yesterday. I mean, that's it. You know, you're trying to reach the, the populace. You know, what's the most popular thing? And Bassett even said yesterday, UFO is ye- is yesterday and ETH, ETH is today, is which today. is nonsense. Right. It's utter nonsense. When he said that, I, I wanted to, you know, scream because that's just ridiculous. You know, like these are somehow separate things. Like, what? So if we see a UFO now, we now know it's an extraterrestrial craft? Is that the idea? That in the past we had to wonder what is this thing, but now we know, and so we're going to go based on that and now draw a bunch of other conclusions based on an assumption that's erroneous at best. See, and this is where, uh, you know, the, the, the four of people sitting on this town round table right now, all four of us, for example, have seen UFOs. For some of us, there's been some more in-depth stuff happening, but all four of us have seen UFOs. I submit that that gives us more of a right to get up and speak of something like this versus most of the people who have been on the stage who have admitted that they have not seen UFOs. So if you haven't seen a UFO, you do not have that level of personal involvement then what is it that motivates you? The desire to become part of the group that has experienced this? Um, the, the, the desire to have control over this topic somehow? Yeah. I mean, you used to come to these things for new, new, new information, new stuff you couldn't hear anywhere else. You'd come to one of these. There's nothing here that was new. There's nothing here that was new at all. And I, I kind of agree with what Jeremy proposes. I mean, if this is like a paparazzi, a paranormal paparazzi, then it's not the cult of personality, but it's the culture of contact. And it's a group and a community that want to belong to this and be part of it, whether they've seen something or not, because there's something that's entertaining and appealing about it, and they just want to be part of that group. Yeah. Well, you know, Dickhead Simone said it well last night. You know, well, you know, this is a, you know, this is about radio. Radio is entertainment, and so basically, it's like you know, we'll peddle any shit we can. As long as you're listening, you don't really care what's on the pipe. And you shouldn't care either because you just be entertained by it. Now, somebody who's going to take that stance and say, well, it's just entertainment, that is someone who's never had an experience in their life. Because for anybody to think that this stuff is in any way entertaining, I find that personally deeply insulting. All right? 
It's disrespectful. Glad we could be your fucking entertainment, you know? Well, those are the same kind of vultures. But I'm glad it's entertaining. Well, these are the same kind of vultures that, that, that will go on television and, you know, report about a murder with a smile on their faces. You know, those people are, are those are, those people have no, to my mind, have no use in society. They are parasitic. They feed on people's angst. They feed on people's fear. And I think that they are not to be given a platform. And so my big problem here is that you have people going up on the stage that have a platform for essentially creating more fear, for creating more confusion, ultimately, because they're not seeking answers. They have their answers, and now what they're doing is they're selling the answers. They don't even want to debate this. You know, and, and the, the cult of personality thing, I mean, the way that Nori was set up yesterday, look, it's George. Gee, George, what do you think about? And where, you know, Susan points out, well, he, you know, said, well, you're never going to know what I think. And that, that's basically a way of saying, well, you know, that's kind of like the equivalent of Cheney's so. And he essentially how he referenced that so. You know, and to me, that so was Cheney saying to American people, fuck you. That was the so. And so that's kind of like what Nori is saying. It's like, well, you know, I, you're never going to know what I think. And, and really what I read in that, Psych 101, is you're not going to know what I think because I don't think. And that's the deal. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And that's why I'm not going to tell you because, you know, I'm just going to throw it all out there. One thing that Nori said yesterday that I that kind of caught my ear, and then he didn't talk a lot more about it, was that when he was in radio, he was he was working, he was a young man, and he couldn't get into the Navy, the Army, so he couldn't get into the Army. He was 4F, he had this heart murmur. Right. Then all of a sudden, he was approached. That's what he said, and that was unclear to me. Yeah. He said that then they came and found him at the radio station, so, you know, you need to have you in. As a public relations person. Well, now that's not clear. They said no, we need you to have you in as well, a public relations person. He said he was a person. public relations person. I, I understand, job, but so. that was at, you know. So but he didn't connect those pieces no. real clearly. But it's interesting how that went down that way. That you know, here's a guy who's saying, okay, I was in the military and I was a public relations operative. Well, now doesn't that give us some basic reason to question motive? Now, I mean, you know, and this is what this is this constant thread of. Who's out there spreading crap and why? And clearly there is a concerted effort to spread this information about this topic, to create confusion, to discredit. And this is certainly, clearly, to my mind, what happened with Greer in 2001 in the Disclosure Project was, and, and John Alexander pointed this out, which I appreciated. He pointed out that here, basically, Greer gets on a stage, puts some very credible people like Robert Salas next to people of no credibility whatsoever, like, like Stone or Dean, and essentially mixes them all together so in the end, anybody who did have a credible story that did have useful information has now been completely, by reputation, tarnished. That's the crux of the whole problem with ufology. That's what UFO Magazine does. That's what this whole disclosure thing does. That's what any UFO uh, convention does, is get credible people up on the stage with circus acts and say just what Nori said and just what Rob Simone said, which is, you make up your own minds. Use your imaginations. I thought you were going to say that all these conventions and stuff tarnish the... Uh... <laughs> That would be Bruce McAbee. <laughs> well, Dr. McAbee, uh, please step over for a second, because we, we have a question for you, if you don't mind. Would you like to say? Um, <laughs> and this is... This is <laughs> what's in the hot seat now? <laughs> no, no, no. No. 
if you remember, Bruce, I mean, when we originally had you on the Paracast, I don't know if you ever listened to that episode, but the preamble to it was me telling Gene Steinberg how thrilled I was that you were one of the people that I most wanted to have on the show, that I had been following your work. Even though I wasn't in any way involved in, in the field for, for many years, I had been following your work for years because of my own interest in, in imaging technology and because of what I felt was the coherent work you had done in doing real analysis of images, not just armchair stuff, but real science. And I respect you for that, and you know that's why. And, I'm, and, and I was thrilled to have you on the show. But we're wondering about your presentation yesterday. It's not in any way what I think any of us expected that you would do. I mean, well, what, you gotta what, understand that although I have done photo analysis, I've done a lot of historical research as well. Right. Of course, I wrote the UFO FBI book, which is all history. Yes. So I've been plugged into both aspects of it. And to do uh, to do a, any UFO investigation, you have to be a historian. You have to get the story down first. Right. Like I said all along, a UFO photo, a UFO does not make. You've got to have everything behind it. So Absolutely. One of the problems, one guy just came up to me about half an hour ago or an hour ago, and so I said, there's so many videos on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, that, these are real. They're completely anonymous, right? Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Which one is real? Which one are we supposed to believe in? And ultimately, what does that tell you? I mean, Jeff and I uh, have talked about this a lot. Because you have a photo, you determine it is not a fabrication, it's not a composite, it's not a miniature, but that doesn't tell you anything about the nature of what you're looking at now. Okay, so it's anomalous. Okay, what else? Well, I don't know. It's anomalous. Do we know where it came from? No. Do we know what it's doing here? No. Do we know what's inside of it? No. So all you have is a photo of an anomalous entity. Now, meanwhile, we had had um, uh, uh, Collins on the Paracast. We had him one time. Robert Collins? Uh, Robert Collins. And subsequently, after the episode, he became very argumentative, almost to the point of being irrational. And we actually invited Doty on the show, and he flat out said, not a chance. He'd have none of, n- nothing of that. So uh, I'm curious to have your take, really, on that book that Collins and Doty wrote, because, I mean, Doty is a guy who, you know, it, you can certainly take the stance that this is a guy from which much disinformation has emitted. I mean, this is a guy who spread a lot of stuff that's questionable that, again, discredits the field. And it's almost as if that was by design. So, what's your feeling about that? Obviously, you've got a tough problem here. We have people, you can establish that they had some inside track on something or other. Right. Because of where they were. I spoke to Doty once about the, uh, the landing at Kirtland Air Force Base. It wasn't really at the base. It was, it was east of the east of Kirtland Air Force Base. But the, I call it currently because that's an easy geographical reference point. Right, sure. That was back in uh, 1980 that happened. I learned about it from Bill Moore in the uh, Freedom of Information Act document that he got uh, two years afterwards or something like that. And then I checked up on it in 19, I think it was 1985, spring of 85, when I just dropped into I was in Kirtland Air Force Base on business for the, Air, for the Navy. Uh, related to the uh, strategic defense initiative stuff. So I just walked into his office and said, do you write this? I put the document right in front of him. And he said, yeah. Then I queried him about it and so on. And that was part of the investigation. It was sometime after that, probably the late late summer or early fall of 85, that I, Collins called me up, said he had heard that I was doing some work in UFO research. And want to know what I knew, and then he starts telling me about what he knew, and he starts talking about this guy who had, who had been telling him a lot of stuff. Right. Like I said at the talk yesterday, I think I said, Collins went to work there in 1985 and started asking about UFOs, and somebody, some people pointed him towards uh, this guy called Hawk, Ernie Kellestraus, and 
uh, said that guy knows a lot about it. So Colin starts interviewing him, and he tells me about Hawk, and uh, I interviewed Hawk for several hours on the telephone in the fall, November, December of 85, and then February 86, I think it was, I had a business job that took me to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So Collins arranged for me to actually meet the guy. Now you say, you, what you heard was not anything you expected to hear. You expected to hear something about photo analysis, like yeah, yeah. But admittedly, like I, said, yeah. I got into the into the historical aspect as well, and I considered this was part of the history. I can't vouch for everything that Hawk said. Obviously, I really can't vouch for anything he said. But what I can vouch for is that this is what he said. Right. <laughs> and he was saying that 20 years ago. Nobody talked about it. It was inside information. The closest it got to being out, coming out, was in this cover-up live show where Hawk was a driver. If you read, if you read Collins, you read Collins. Yeah, I read the yeah. Yeah. If you look, I'm not mentioned in there at all. And the fact that I interviewed Hawk in at the very beginning of these uh, machinations that Hawk undertook to try to get information out, so far as I can tell, he was a major driver in leading leading to this cover-up live stuff. Uh, which I think they botched if they had left out the uh, strawberry ice cream and the Tibetan music mm. the whole show would have gone over a lot better but as soon as that comes out you know all of a sudden the credibility is riding along here <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. the floor yeah. <laughs> so they, they uh, shot themselves in the foot that they were looking for some sort of a credible response on the part of the general population supposedly they did shake up some people on the inside but well, did you ever ask Hawk, or did you ever find out what his response was? I've to never talked to him since I had that interview in February. Okay, well, he goes on this UFOs cover-up live, you know, and I think it was, was it Doty? Someone else who was talking about, you know, brazy strawberry ice cream and all this sort of uh, nonsense. Was, right, right, right. But that, did that bug that him? Had, do, that, do you have I any idea? That. Was he that had, nothing that? To do, that had nothing to do with Hawk. Well, it's it's guilt by, by some, association, sort of. That may be, but Hawk's activities were sort of over by the time that show was completed. As far as so far as I can tell, and although he has, he kept up communications with, with Collins for a number of years after that. Collins said that Hawk, for the last five or six or seven years, hadn't, hadn't talked to anybody. I don't think he was too happy to see Doty's book come out. Or, or right. Collins, Collins wrote most of that. Doty wrote some, but Collins was a major driver. And I think Collins is basically an honest guy. Now he may be deluded, but I think he puts into the book what he's been told, and he's pretty straightforward on that. So there is then in that book content about the alleged Serpo project. That, um, Which is something totally recent, and I don't know if that has anything to do with what was going on in the uh, 90s. I made a, com- made a comment about the Pelican briefs, which um, a series of notes I have on an investigation after I spoke at the CIA, a general unclassified type of anybody can come to the right. lunch ta- lunchroom talk. They had other people come to the CIA and talk. Tom Clancy went there. I, and I was invited to go in here Tom Clancy speak to the CIA. Now, Clancy, in that book, Hunt for Red October, had, quote, discovered and publicized, you know, about this underwater listening array of hydrophones. Right. <laughs> and the CIA guys said, well, where did you get all this stuff? And I was like, well, it's out in the open literature. And I read in depth about the subject, and I made up this big, long story about a submarine that runs on electromagnetic propulsion. But anyway, the uh, point is that they can have anybody come and talk to them if they want. And in 1987 <clears throat> was the time that the uh, MJ-12 documents came out in the spring, and then the MUFON Symposium was in Washington, D.C. Uh, so there's a lot of press coverage of the whole subject, you know, and uh, there's some interest in the CIA, and the guy there invited me to say, go ahead and give a talk. So I talked about their documents. 
to them. And as I said, I created a bunch of spies in the agency. That's what I was told. And then I got feedback over the next few years about people looking here and there and elsewhere and not finding anything. That's the, that's the question, the real question, which tends to agree with what John Alexander was saying. We were talking about that before, yeah, that the government doesn't really have a lot of information or that they're not interested. Which they're not interested. They may be collecting it and dumping it in the, in a, in a circular file or a black hole or a safe somewhere. I don't know. It's a puzzle to me because... When, again, if you could do the history, you go back into the late 40s and early 50s and you look at the sightings that they had. And on the public, from the public point of view, they're saying, well, we're not finding any evidence of any technology we don't know anything about. There's nothing that's a threat to the United States. If you look at the actual sightings, and it's hard to believe that the guys who are analyzing these can be so stupid as to not realize what's going on. Yeah. So if there are brains somewhere, it's either that, well, you put your brains away when the guy up above you says, you didn't see that. This never happened. Like Jesse Marcel is told, sure, this was a weather balloon. Oh, yes, sir. So a weather balloon. I'll collect my check for the rest of my life. And that's it. But, you know, that buck has to stop somewhere. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, when we heard about this, the, the, the allegations of what was going on at Abu Ghraib and in Guantanamo Bay, and we kept hearing government statements that, well, no, this is these are isolated incidents. But there were many of us who, like when we heard about the uh, evidence for weapons of mass destruction in, uh, in late 2002, uh, there are many of us that doubted these sources. And, you know, what ended up happening was, after it all went down, then as time goes by, well, now it comes out that, well, yeah, there were questions about the intelligence, and yeah, there were questions about who knew what, and, oh, maybe the British knew, and, oh, hell, the British definitely knew, and, oh, well, wait, we, we did know, and and it, it's almost as if people wait for enough time to go by where, you know, the uh, like uh, Gore Vidal says, in the United States of amnesia, people just forget, and at a certain point, you reach a threshold, and now you can basically make up the story over again, and no one will really care, so it's almost as if what we're talking about this topic, that if, if you sort of change the subject enough times, that ultimately you can distract people to the point where they where they forget where they started, and this is it. What ends up going? You have this runaround that keeps going on, and this is something certainly in the case of ufology. We have long discredited cases that keep resurfacing because new blood comes into the field, yeah. and people say, "Well, gee, what about this Billy Meyer well, photograph?" They're just talking to me about Adamski. <laughs> right. Jeez. We just saw what what yeah. we saw what Simone put it, You saw his show. No, we we couldn't do that. Well, he shows one of the. <laughs> He, just he, showed, he showed one of the pictures that he showed. He, he's into the history stuff. Right. And one of the pictures he showed was from some kids that took a UFO, a flying saucer photo in England in 1954, 50, sometime in the 50s. And right. it was widely publicized, and it shows a sort of a glowing thing against ordinary background of, well, not really much background, sky and nearby trees and stuff. And it has a general sort of a sh- outline shape like this, crude outline comparable to the Adamski picture. Right. Well, nobody knows, you know, what the validity of that particular thing that that Simone showed was. But then this guy comes up to me and he says, now, didn't that look like, you know, this could have been the Adamski photo, and if that was true, then Adamski, you know... Right, it was yeah, she, that's now connecting have no relation yeah. to one another. Right. <laughs> and, but that's the problem that you're, you're saying, you know, people coming into this field new are asking all the questions that we've asked for hundreds of years, and we've sort of come to some resolution. I was just talking to Simone about that problem, or no, I was talking to Terry Hansen. He pointed out that the internet can leapfrog the problems of all the uh, uh, censorship and covering up of, of information and delusion like you're just talking about. Information comes out quickly and gets on the internet. But, you know, this is a double-edged sword because 
the internet is as an unfiltered situation. Up to this point, you've had a sighting occurs, then there's the resistance to the acceptance of that sighting by, the, say, the, the establishment, and ufologists come along and they may resist it too or they may accept it. But at least that means that out of 10 or 15 spurious reports, only one or two of them ends up in the uh, file of ba the basket of... Right, they basically get filtered But now out. all of a sudden yeah. you have no filtering at all. Yeah, well, in fact, the Pentagon's spending billions now to put this information on the internet. Yeah, they're paying bloggers to write stuff that, yeah, just disappears. In fact, uh, my wife is constantly saying, oh, I see you're being paid by DOD now to actually counter this, and they never respond to that. The ones that really write will never respond to that. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, oh, I didn't hear that, sorry. And they never present facts. It's always that. Yeah. It's always well, it's, it's always the same thing, but then the question is how do you break through that now? You've appeared in a couple of recent episodes of, uh, of Burns Goes, uh, UFO Hunters, right? And uh, am I wrong? I, I might be remembering incorrectly, but did they have you look at those Chad photos? Yeah. Right. Now, early on in the history of those photos... I don't remember, I don't remember what they ultimately said. Well, I think ultimately they said that, you know, something that we knew within weeks of those photos being released, that they were nonsense, that they were CG images, they were composites. Uh, anybody there are people who want to argue that can you prove it's a CG image? Can you prove that one out? Well, you know, it's like, yeah, I can make a CG image that looks as good, so what does that mean? Yeah, right. Uh, if, you're, if you're perfect, does that mean it's real? Right. right. And but that's always been the case. Well, exactly. Go back to the trend photos where I spent you know hours and hours on. I proved that you couldn't prove it was a fake. <laughs> right, but what does that prove is real? Right? real. So you have to know the history of the trends to find out that well, yeah, like Bill Powell, the first guy I interviewed them said he was the person who published them in the newspapers to begin with. Right, and he says uh, I. I talked to him in the 70s, so some 25 years after the event. He says, I took those pictures, I blew them over every which way, I couldn't figure out how the trends had faked it. Finally, I decided to publish them because they were too stupid. Unquote. Like, <laughs> he's telling me it's over the phone. So it wasn't based on that he believed that the photo proved it was real. He just couldn't imagine the trends would think of such a thing. We're able to come up with that, right? Yeah. Well, like you said before, any photograph you get is worthless, relatively, without, without context. Person. Without prominence. I mean, if you don't have any of the background, Information. The thing with the Chad. That's photos. exactly the Chad problem. You got Chad yeah. saying the thing. That I, I remember reading the first reports of that. He says, "My buddy and I were out wherever we were, you know, and it's something flying around. We didn't have a camera with us, so we came back. <laughs> so we went home. A few days later, we go back again. Oh, and there, it there it is. And my friend had the guts to actually run underneath and take a picture, looking straight. Right. And my first reaction is, "You mean after 60 years of flying saucer reports and photos and all that sort of shit, this is the first time that anybody's had the guts." to run underneath one and take a picture looking up. Uh -huh. uh, sounds to me like a big, you know, like, <laughs> up, like crap. <laughs> and then we see these images continue to emerge. And... They were it, and they it changed and they changed. They were adding. They were they had more modeling time, so they were adding. They were adding geometries to it. But they still didn't get the rendering down so good. I mean, you know, these are people. Who, along comes Isaac with his carrots, right? Yeah. And they get this document that's just you know just ridiculous, and it's as if you know. In many ways, to me, it, it, it mimics the Billy Meyer thing, where you have stuff piling up, and it's almost as if momentum and inertia is supposed to allow it to be so that this becomes legitimate because if enough. People People say, if, if there's enough stuff, well, like what Horn says, you know, well, I have all these images. Look at all of the yeah. images. How can, you, how can you discredit all the images? It's like, well, you know, a big pile of crap smells as bad as a small you know, pile of crap. I just saw in Simone's presentation. I hadn't seen this. I knew that Billy Meyer had taken 
had been you know, taking some photos when he was an ashram in India. It was a story. All oh, right, sixty-six so UFO up above the ashram. And one case is published one way, and another case is published the other way. It's supposed to look like two different pictures, but actually it's just a horizontal flip. <laughs> nice. But so this was a newspaper article talking about him in '64, mm-hmm. and I'm reading, trying to read it real fast, and it looked to me like it said he had taken 400 photos as of 1964, and his pair portrays him with a hat on. He said he looked like Billy the Kid, and that's where they call, well, people right, call that's him. That's the name of his friends came up with the name yeah, Billy Meyer. So, you know, talk about having poor credibility if he's claiming that he got 400 photos in 1975 or 76 was the time frame supposedly of all these contacts. But in fact, it goes back 10 years or more before him. Yeah. So, Bruce, you never trust the man with a monkey. That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> the money to feed the one on his back. <laughs> well, Bruce, in what context was Simone presenting these images? Oh, this is the history of stuff that's been you know, interesting to me, and uh, he went all the way back into some early settings, 1808, newspaper story in 1930s, and so on. Now, meanwhile, we, we sat... He's not, a, he's, he's not a, a you know case investigator of... Right. But he's a collector of stuff. Which I, I got news for you. He's going. not a journalist either. <laughs> yeah, journalist supposedly keeps journalists. <laughs> <laughs> I up to him last night, and, and David and Jeff and Jeremy had some other things to say, and he got up and ran away from us. He literally yeah. got up and ran. i got to get a beer. <laughs> well, he was telling us that basically, uh, you know, uh, radio is entertainment, and that's what it's about, and that, you know, he's not going to draw conclusions one, one way or the other. The other. Well, I'll just let you make up your own mind. I'm just going to present the facts. And, you know, the facts does not equate to a bunch of lies other people brought. The facts that he's presenting are the fact that this is in a newspaper here, and there's another piece. Of, I can actually show you this newspaper. Here's a piece of it right here, you know. Right. That's a fact. Yeah. But what the, what's the content, the information in it? Right. Who knows? Who knows if it's truly a fact? No, he did find some interesting stuff. Uh, he has a comment about the trend photos by Arthur C. Clarke. I didn't know that existed. Yeah. Huh. But it was a newspaper story in which he says, uh, it almost made, yeah, we don't know how, how to explain this, but it almost makes you think they might be extraterritorial. Not for us, but extraterritorial creatures. There are plenty of those around, right? No lack of those. Hey, where does that leave us, Bruce? I mean, uh, you know, where does that leave you? I mean, you've been looking at this for more than a few years. Uh, what's your thought on, you know, the state of disclosure? I mean, you think that this is even a possibility? Well, I don't think the government's going to disclose anything until it's beaten on to a pulp. Right. Once it's proven by the outside world that these things are real, flying around and doing something, and then the government will say, oh, yeah, we knew that all along. You know, it's what I call the emperor has no clothes effect. Eventually, there'll be enough people that agree that this is going on that... The government can't sort of. There's no point in trying to maintain a cover-up. But on the other hand, they may not. They may still withhold things like, well, we aren't going to give you a piece of the Roswell material to work on. We're not going to uh, tell you about our contact, our own contacts with the aliens or something. I don't really know, you know what's going to happen. Obviously. Sure. Predictions of disclosure eminent disclosure for the last twenty or thirty years. <laughs> right, exactly. In um, 1987, when we had the uh, Newfound Symposium in Washington D.C., we had uh, buttons walking on the buttons. Said, forty years is long enough. Yeah. Well, now <laughs> fifty years is long enough. As a matter of fact, I was at the very beginning, the first slide of the, a talk that I have written. I can't remember now which one it is, but it says. 
there's a history of the subject, and it says, I talk about how it was 40 years as long enough, you know, 1987, and below that is written 50 years as long enough. How about 60 years? I guess it was last year. I talked at the, at the, at the Roswell Museum. <laughs> well, do you think we know even any more than was known 30 years ago? Oh, yeah. But, well, certainly there's a quantity of stuff. Well, well certainly there are no more sightings. Yeah, right. Yeah, more, sure. more sightings. More photos. Initially, you had um, sightings and photos, but basically things were out there, right? And very few reports of stuff close by or direct interactions. And then you got the beginnings of the stories of the induction stuff. Right. That took about 15 years to get to there, 15 or 20 years. But it was 20 years from approximately from, let's say, Roswell to a publication of uh, Fuller's book on the, the interrupted journey. Fuller's book, yeah. And that sort of was the beginning of the situation, but the paradigm didn't shift until 1980, I would say, when Missing Time came out. All of a sudden, Bud Hopkins has got this sort of codified. What What is missing time? What does it mean? You know, what what's the significance of it? Because that was the thing that was in the, uh, the Betty and Barney Hill case. Right off the fact that they couldn't understand what for Alice they had gotten right. there, gotten home so late. And the missing time sort of put that whole thing together. Then, about the same time frame, you have... Uh, stories of Roswell coming out, all of a sudden, gee, maybe actually hardware somewhere as opposed to just photos and distant sightings. So I say the paradigm tended to shift in, in the early 80s, and since then, we've just been riding along on the same thing. Yeah, you, may be, you might have crop circles, and you might have cattle mutilations, and I don't know what else. Along with the abduction stuff has been uh, this feeling that uh, people who are, have direct interactions have more psychic connections with things, and I don't know exactly how to interpret that, but even when I was doing the, the Gulf Breeze stuff, you know, Gulf Breeze Ed, who came out, who was panned, widely panned by all sorts of skeptics and even believers, <laughs> I still think all that stuff was real. Me too. Did you ever see? But you know, he told stories that were weird that went along with this stuff. He had he said that he had been telling his family stories of strange things that happened in his youth before any of these UFO sightings occurred. Mm-hmm. The story of the black dog. And just yesterday, I was listening to Whitley Strieber or somebody on the radio talking about the black dog story. And here Ed had one where he's, I don't know, a teenage, young teenager, going to ride his bicycle to the grocery store or something like that for some food. He goes out of his front door, he's get to get his bicycle, here's this black dog sitting there looking at him. And you think, that's kind of strange, you know, I don't, have a, I don't have a black dog. This black dog follows him all the way to the store. He buys the stuff, he's reluctant to come out of the store, he's afraid that the black dog is going to be there. And he comes out, and the black dog isn't around. He gets on his bike, starts riding. All of a sudden, the black dog catches up, follows him all the way home. And there was another story, which sounds really bizarre. He said he was fishing at a time when he lived in um, southern southern Texas, anyway, in a lake. And this is daytime. He's out there fishing, and he notices there's a light in the water. And he takes his oar and starts trying to beat on that light. Now, if I saw a light in the water, I'd say, get me out of here. It's yeah, a fish no. aren't. Yeah. I don't know for any electric fish. No. <laughs> but he starts beating on this thing, and then he says, next thing he knows, he wakes up sometime later lying on the bottom of the boat. 
Right. Mm. Now, these are stories he was telling, and there was another one I forget now, but there were three stories he told his family, his weird things that happened to him when he was younger, before any of these UFO things happened. So his family knew that he had been telling these stories. And then, after the UFO thing starts, one of the things he did was he goes to, um, in um, June of 1988, so this is after the sighting started in November 1987, you go all the way through the springtime, all those sightings. Dozens of other people seeing the same thing. Then you have him going through uh, hypnosis with a uh, clinical therapist who worked for the uh, police department. One hour, eight one hour sessions. And during some of those sessions, the stories come out about uh, these events that happened beforehand, before he'd ever had any sightings. And suddenly things get, get straightened out, you might say, is what was going on in these abductions. Along with what had happened, uh, the one that really alerted us to this was May 1, 1988, when he called me up in the morning, or at noontime approximately, and I was sitting there actually analyzing some of his photos to get ready for the MUFON presentation, the MUFON Symposium, that year, 1988, right? I was going to talk about Gulf Breeze. He calls me up and he's, and the first thing I hear on the phone is, <laughs> I didn't know who that was. And then I hear him start to talk, and it sounded like he must have been running or something like that. But actually, he was um, scared shitless of what it was. He said he had t gone out the night before with his SRS camera, the uh, self-referencing stereo camera that I had him. I suggested he make one foot size, two cameras, so he could get parallax. He did it better. He made it two feet. Jeez. Took that two cameras. So with a two-foot parallax, you could see out to a couple hundred feet. And he said, I set up my camera. He had used it, he had used it three times, twice before, or three times before. But this was by far the best because he got in the picture not only two UFOs at different distances, but he also got the lights across the bridge from Gulf Breeze to Pensacola, Pensacola Beach. So you had reference distance. You could calibrate the parallax is what it amounted to. And when I did that, I found that he had what I call a Type 1 Ed model circular thing with the lights on the bottom, you know, out there 400 and some feet. Right. And the one that, the type of thing that he captured earlier on the uh, stereo camera, the uh, Nimslow photo camera in February, which was a completely different shape and a lot, clearly a lot smaller from the Nimslow. The Nimslow camera itself gave you a stereo effect because it had four lenses. Four you had one? Yeah, I did. And I had it calibrated and uh, determined that the, the first, he took 10 pictures on his on the 36-shot roll. He got 10 photos, and these photos correspond to an object that was only about two and a half feet long, but it was only like 40 feet away. That's what they call the drain, right? That was no, no, no. Well, they know, nobody used that term. Uh -huh. was a small it was, it was a Nimslow type is what I call it, but it had a whole bunch of lights, and it had a characteristic shape of the lights that you saw. Right. He claimed that it went on the far side of a tree, a, a pine tree that was in the shoreline park. And in fact, you, if you looked at the pictures one after another as they're coming along, sure enough, there's some pictures where pieces of it are sort of blocked out. And the distance from the tree, from where he was standing at the top of that tree was about 40 feet, which agreed with the parallax effect. I could best mm -hmm. I could say it was 40 to 70 feet. Well, a two and a half feet size that I calculated based on the parallax shape. That was a completely different object from what he had been photographing. But now in the main one pictures, with these two Model 600 stereo cameras, or cameras that he fired off at the same time, and got this calibratable parallax, here you've got the, the Type 1 version that was 470 feet away and 135 feet above the water or something like that. 
he, oh, he was looking out over the water. This was a shoreline park where he took these pictures. He said that, um, well, he took the picture, and when I and after I'd analyzed him, I found that this newslotype was also on there. I must say I was stunned when I saw when I looked through the magnifying glass and I saw that array. I was actually actually shocked, and that turned out to be like 130 feet away and some altitude above the water. There were two different distances in sizes and shapes and so on. And, the, and when you calculate, when you projected it out to the parallax distance, the size of the image corresponded to two and a half feet. And I'm so saying, that was consistent. how the fuck right. could a guy like Ed figure out how to do parallax on one thing to say nothing of two objects two that are in the same sizes. scene? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Another story was that he, he took this picture of the two objects out there, and he's getting ready to take another picture, and he suddenly realizes the big one is over his head, and he finds himself falling downwards in a white light. The next thing he knows, he's picking himself up off the beach, and his, he, he had looked at his watch beforehand, before this sighting started, and now he's looking at it later, it's an hour and 20 minutes or something like that, missing. So he packs up everything, gets in his car, runs home, and he had this he had this big impression in his head. He said that his daughter, who was in, sleeping at the house, they were going to come to get here, her or something like that. So he went back quickly, as quickly as he could, and sat outside her door until morning came. Then he went to sleep, and he woke up about 11.30. He said they went into the uh, bathroom. My head was hurting. My hands smelled horrible. And I had this real horrible odor under my fingernails. And he looked at his, in the mirror, and he see a red spot that was here on his head, and a red spot here, and a red spot here. He actually had the spots on his head photographed by one of the MUFON investigators the next day. There's one here, one here, one here, and one in the back. That became significant as a result of the regression stuff. But anyway, he uh, had these marks, and he was feeling horrible. He had wrapped his hand up, one or both of his hands, with a wet towel to hold off the odor. <laughs> what do you describe this odor as? Rotten, whatever. I don't know. It was, it was horrible. And uh, then he called me up. He wanted somebody to talk to him. He said he wanted to talk to somebody who was far away. He didn't want anybody to be actually visiting him. So he called me up to talk about it. And like I said, the first thing I heard is it sounded like he was breathing heavily. And then he starts talking. It's not the normal Ed. Uh, his voice is sort of broken. And uh, I asked him if I could tape the conversation. I'm the only person who's ever heard it. But you know, I have documentation of how that went. And gradually I was able to get him to sort of concentrate on the story of what he remembered. And he's complaining about how he's been bitten, beaten on uh, by the aliens themselves and also by all the people that he's telling this stuff to, you know. He's, getting, he's yeah. getting it from both sides, which he did not appreciate at all. But anyway, he goes through the story, and by the time I finished talking to him, about half an hour later, he was more of his normal Ed, some sort of jocularity, which is, I guess, the only way he can make it through something like that. Next day, he had Charles Flanagan, I think, one of the uh, UFO investigators there, photograph his head. Well, he didn't know what these things signified, and he had scraped some stuff from under his fingernails, and that was partially tested. It had a lot of silicon in it, but we figured he could have scraped his fingernails on the, on the beach. Gotten, um, sure, and that would show the silicon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, under hypnosis, one of the sessions that he has, he's told about how he had uh, put on a table a number of these sessions in hypnosis, the story often went that he would be put into a circumstance of something or other. And then after some things happen, they take him and put him on a bench. They put a hat on his head, but it's not. it had 
two things that came down like this and pressed in here, and then came down like that and pressed in here, like little bars or metal bars or something like that. You know, they had pressure points. Then he said they brought in a whole bunch of some taller ones, brought in a whole bunch of little ones, and they would put the little ones under the same sort of hat. And all of a sudden, he would relive whatever experience he had had. And then they'd take that one out and put in another one. And they'd relive the experience like he was acting like a tape recorder playing back. And these things were absorbing, presumably. Presumably. He had had some dreams in the early spring of 88, which uh, had bizarre content. And one of them that I can remember was, he said he said he, he, he had written, he had kept a notepad by his table, like some people do, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night and think of something, you write it yeah. down. Yeah, jot down, your thoughts. So he had a number of these messages. The, ones, the one that sticks in my mind is the one that said, the news must learn, N-E-W-S must learn. What the hell does that mean? It's not an acronym for yeah. yeah, well, my thought is news, like newspaper or something like that, but what does the newspaper learn? What the news must learn. And this came, this he had written down something like in February or early March of the year of 1988. This is many months before the regressions. Mm-hmm. After, during one of the regressions, I, like I was saying, they put this hat on his head, bring in these creatures, replay whatever thing he had done, and that seemed to be the explanation. The news was the new ones, those that are new. Which almost sounds like we've got manufactured entities. They're new. Well, they're new. They're kids or whatever. One of the things that I recall, he said he was put into a situation where he was in a room. Now, there were several situations that he was put into, supposedly, but one of them that I recall was he was put in a, he's in a room, and, and, and there are two 50-gallon 50 50 gallon oil drums with lids, and he's in there with two kids, two children. And all of a sudden, in through the door comes a dragon or a monster or a Gila monster or something that's a Komodo dragon type of thing or whatever, and he's afraid that or a big alligator, I don't know, some creature comes in and he's going to eat somebody, right? So he's offered an ethical choice. Do I take the two kids and put them in the drums, or do I leave one kid out and I jump in the drum? What, what do I do? So he takes the two kids, puts them in the drum, puts the lid on, and he prepares to fight off whatever this monster is. All of a sudden, the walls move away. Everything changes. The kids are gone. He goes into this room. They put him on a table, put the hat on his head, and replay it over and over again. So these kids, little ones come in. Hmm. Now, that happened. Uh, it's been a long time because I've read these transcripts of the... Uh, but it's all in his book called Abductions in Gulf Breeze, which is the second book that he published. So, uh, you're now, you know what this sounds like is, I'd say it's essentially consistent with Dave Jacobs. If they're trying to create hybrids and they want the hybrids to know how we live so they can fit in, what are they going to do? Start when they're kids, I suppose, the equivalent of children, and say, here's what a human being does under certain circumstances. It's fortunate that we get a guy like Ed to, uh, to demonstrate the ethics instead of Hitler, who probably uh, <laughs> would have taken both jobs and yeah. taught himself. And, uh, I mean, I just talked to William uh, Pugh through email oh, yeah. uh-huh. uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said to me that they don't have any sightings down there really anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I said, when did it stop, or how did it stop? He said, well, it kind of stopped when we stopped going down to look at it. We got tired of seeing Bubba all the time, so we stopped going, and not long after that. Now, Ed's important because of the pictures he took, but there were 
<coughs> dozens to hundreds of other people who saw stuff. Yeah, especially before during, Ed. Yeah, before Ed, but before Ed, there weren't that many sightings. Uh, before November 11th, 1987, when this whole thing blew up and there were like seven or eight sightings that one day. And it's like, you know, things are going along one sighting per year and then bing, all of a sudden you're up to X number per day or per week. They had uh, Bubba sightings, 170 that they logged between November of 1990 and July 4th of 1992. After that, Bubba sort of went away. I had, and it's kind of too bad because we actually got a major instrumentation van down there ready to go. Right. And we went down there in August of 92, and Bubba wasn't around. We got some interesting stuff that turned out to be explainable. We had a sighting that would have gone down in the books as being a weird Bubba-type sighting, except for the fact that I had a big telescope available which showed that there was an airplane, probably from Eglin Air Force Base, throwing out flares. Huh. What about these uh, <laughs> supposed light flares that came up out of the water? The Tinkerbells that you mentioned on time. That was towards the end. Up out of the water? Yeah, they came across <laughs> the water, across the pier. I had some people down there tell me that they... Then when, the we, when we went out with that instrumentation van, there was one event which was anomalous, truly anomalous. And you turn, use the term Tinkerbell, that's the one that, that I connect up with. There may be some others that yeah. you're thinking of. But this instrumented van was put together by George Hathaway, a guy up in uh, Canada, who was getting money directly from the prince of a fellow known as Lichtenstein, we always hoped that he would just give us one of his paintings to sell. <laughs> yeah. you, don't oh, yes. to, you don't have to do much, just give us one of your paintings and <laughs> you'll right. fund the whole field. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, that instrumentation van had, uh, I was given the prerogative, uh, the money as it were, to, to make a, a telescope. Uh, and so I got a 1600-millimeter um, focal length F11 I just happened to run into. It was in a photo store in exactly perfect situation. Here I had the authorization to do it. I walk into this photo store and here these got not only this telescope which was optimum an F-11 telescope this big in diameter you know that long and I could put a surveillance camera on the back of it black and white and he had a so-called Mitchell mount which is a big heavy yep. mount for a, a movie camera and so I put a table on that and I put my telescope in the middle and I had a uh, an ordinary I had a video ordinary video camera on one side and a uh, ordinary camera with a telephoto lens on the other side and I was able to work the camera using the camera as a tracking gate situation where I knew the center of the field of view of the ordinary video camera was the center of the field of view of the big one. And so I could look at the small, the, the, the regular camera and track whatever was moving and know that the other thing was going to be centered in the big one. And that's how I found out that what was that there was this airplane throwing out flares. But during that sight and during that time, when we had the van down there for a week, now people were coming out, you know, to see what was going on. Sure. This was sort of regenerated, well, I call the Gulf Breeze Research Team. Um, they had more or less given up after July 4th. That seemed to be the last sighting. They had come out off and on since then, but while they were standing there, we were on a parking lot. Then there was a sand dune, and then the beach over here. One of the abductees that Bud had worked with the, the intruders, Debbie Toomey. She was one of the people sitting out there on the beach, uh, lying down on a, uh, or just sitting on a beach chair, you know, and there were a bunch of people at the parking lot, and we were separated by the sand dune. Now, in the van, one of the things they had was a radar, a microwave receiver. The guy had a, a dish. He was had it pointed in a direction where he could actually see the, uh, the uh, radar pulses from the Pensacola Air Force Base uh, airport. 
five miles or something like that north of where we were. And, and you could see the pulses in the oscilloscope that corresponded to the uh, pulses coming out of the radar. Well, suddenly, as we're standing there in the night, somebody talks about this bright light, and not, well, a, a light that's moving rapidly from, well, it was from the west, from our right-hand side, because we're facing the ocean, facing the sand dune. The right-hand side, this little, little light comes along. It's moving rapidly enough so that you know you don't really have much time to do anything. You just sort of react and turn your face. Oh yeah, here's this light going along and it seemed to dip down, and I saw it between me and the sand dune. So I knew it wasn't something that was a long distance away. So it was, it was small, and it zips off. And uh, you know, if, if I were to try to compare it with something, I'd say it was a firefly. Except that in August and <laughs> on Pensacola Beach, there aren't any fireflies. <laughs> but that was my, that was my impression. Now, the guy who was operating this um, millimeter wave receiver had immediately turned this thing sort of upwards. And he couldn't really point it at this object. It was moving too fast. But he turns it, and, all, and when we look afterwards, it, this is set on automatic capture. So if there was a pulse that came along, it would trigger the scope, and the scope would just hold that picture. Bang, he got a pulse. You know what? Now, he had a diode rectifier that was taking the output from this dish rectifying it and running it into the scope. Now, because there's a diode rectifier, there's a polarity involved, positive and negative. Sure. This pulse was in the wrong polarity. He never published that. Well, then what would account for that? I don't know. Nobody knew. We never did figure out how in the world you get the damn thing to come out backwards unless you had some... You're absolutely forcing this, the signal in a direction opposite to... Uh, what that diode was supposed to do. So there's some kind of phase dissonance going on? I don't know. But, you know, this thing just went over. He, he looks at the scope. Oh, we got something. Wait a minute. <laughs> huh. That's a bizarre place. I mean... Well, over the years following, the Gulf Research Team people continued to go out for another couple of years. They probably started to fade out around 94, 95. Yeah, well, the activity said. had pretty much ceased at that point. Yeah. Right? Ed actually had annual sighting. Now, his first sighting was on November 11, 1987, and then he had continued sightings up through 1980, early 1988, with May 1, 1988 being the last one of what I call a first phase. Then, in the whole Gulf Breeze area, there was a low drop-off in the number of sightings during the, the latter part of 88, all through 89, all the way until November 90, when the Bubba sighting started. There were some red-light sightings in April of 1989, or 1990, I guess. That probably were predecessors of Bubba, but it wasn't until November 90 when Bubba started showing up almost on a daily basis sometimes that they got a lot of concentration. Well, now Ed independently was having his own sightings sometimes in the daylight. And I published some of those, like for example, in 1994 there were two sightings, one in January of this jet that was flying past the object. Oh yeah, yeah. those photos, those photos, well known. Sure. And also. The one in April of 1994, which was the water I call the water spot photo, object hovering over the Santa Rosa Sound with this thin little line up below it. And Ed said, you know, he saw this water being sucked up, and he took a picture of it, and you can actually see, you can see foam on the water down below, sort of. It's unfortunate that he had the Model 600 camera to take it instead of a high resolution. <laughs> yeah, it was anyway. the size of a head of a pin on the, mm. you know. The shadow photo where this object comes in from the left-hand side and reverses its direction and goes back out, and you look carefully, you can see the shadow on the trees. That was uh, July 95, 96. 
Which one was the black dots on the window? The snap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember what year that was. They, they, they sort of became coming at various times during the year, but there were months between sightings. But this, the, the round silver spears, didn't that start on Thanksgiving Day when he was walking on the beach? The, he had a video, video from November, and no, the, November turned out to be rather consistent with sightings, going all the way up into 1997, I think, is the last one that he told me about, and he may well have had sightings since then, but I haven't heard anything about them. The video you're talking about, the beach video, where he's videotaping this thing up there, and all of a sudden, bing, it's gone. He tells him, I'm going to tell that guy to turn around. The, so the guy was walking beach. towards him, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell that guy to turn around. He gets much closer. Oh, 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 you know it? I mean, it's like... It's like you heard him. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's ridiculous. I know, the thing was up there reflecting sunlight, like it was a solid reflector of some sort. Yeah. And then it's just, in one, you know, yeah, it's there, and the next frame, it's gone. Yeah. That's not like the... Um, Oh, the video, what, what do we call it? I can't think of the name of it now. Where you actually see the thing hovering, and then you see it speed off to one side. That's the shot underneath the roof. Uh, that's a different one than you're thinking of. That one's amazing. That one where the roof is slanting down this way, yes. and the thing is here, and it zips down like yes. that. Who shot that? I don't know. That's one of the, as my recollection is, that's one of the ones that turned up as an anonymous. Sanio spent a lot of time, you know, Jeff, I guess. Sure. Uh, spent a lot of time on that. But the one that I spent time on was where a person was, saw this thing, oh, it was a story of, he said, he was up on his, in his lawn and he saw this thing going over, which he thought was a missile, uh, like a tomahawk missile that was flying low over, this, over the town. That alerted him to there's something, something going on. But he, he thought, he didn't think of UFO, he thought of a missile, right? right? And he couldn't imagine why somebody would be launching, like the Navy missile launching a missile yeah. to fly over the land. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then there was something else, as I recall, but the point is that he fi finally had this one sighting where he's up on a on the deck of his house or something. And he's looking. I, I don't know what the video situation was. He was looking out over the water, and he had his camera. He had, he had run and gotten his camera, his video camera, and he set the camera on the railing. And he's holding the camera, and you see this little shiny thing in the center of the field of view. And then all of a sudden it goes dead. In the, the video, he said he ran out of a battery, put in another battery, and it was still there. And he continues to videotape it. You see this break in the video where yes, he put in the battery. the battery. He continues to videotape, and all of a sudden uh, they put the pedal to the metal because you could actually see this image, which is a nice, compact, shiny type of image. It begins to move and stretch. Elongate. Right. And it yeah. elongates to the point where the last image, five frames later, it's this long, whereas it started like this, you know, right. and that stretching effect is due to the fact that it's moving farther and farther during the frame time. Right. Uh, corresponding to, I don't know, tens of Gs of acceleration. If it were only it's a thousand feet away. I mean, to watch it, it's just like... I played that to audiences, and I say, if you blink, you're going to miss it. Right, <laughs> you will. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. I mean, have you ever heard of anybody in Gulf Breeze ever, ever reporting pinpoint tremors of any kind that they have physically felt standing out anywhere in Gulf Breeze? Not that I know of. Okay, that's something that at the conference where I shot that thing during the conference that just about everybody that was in my little experience or group that I brought down there told me about. I didn't feel it until we were getting ready to leave. And then it felt like we were standing in a group, getting a group picture, and I was standing right next to somebody. And it felt like everybody dropped down six inches and came back up. Huh. And the guy next to me didn't feel it. The girl next to me did. And I've never heard anybody talk about that. I've never seen it reported anywhere. But just about everybody in that group I was with had felt it at one point or another.
Mother Durham. Hmm. In different places. In different places. In the when was this? Outside. Oh, okay. So it was the late latter nineties, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I never got. I never heard anybody else. It talk had about that. two events that happened. I think it was November. November eight, November ninety six, and November ninety seven. I think the last two. Now these were close up things, and he got a photo in each case. But in each case, he called somebody. Now, you could ask Bland Pew. He right. called up Bland to tell him the sighting was going on. Right. And uh, when he called me and I left a message, uh, I wasn't at my desk at the time that he called. And in each case, this object was within fifty feet of him. Dome craft like that. Mm-hmm. In one case, the first one, and actually I think this might be in the last book that was published, The UFOs Are Real, here's the proof book. The thing is here, and you see a round shadow on the water. Uh, and we were able, because the shadow was there, and we knew where the sun was, we were able to calculate how far that, away that thing was. And uh, 15, 20 feet or something like that in diameter. Right. It's crazy. <laughs> You bring up the UFOs are real book, which uh, I tracked a copy of Dan. And when we had you on the show, I was asking you about that Kanaima photo. That uh, oh yeah, that looks a lot like the. Uh, which is a lot the, better if you see the original. Well, this brings my question: Where's the original? Well, Ed has it. Is all I Ed Walters has that yeah. original. Well. He has whatever the guy sent him. Right. It was called the original, a copy of the original, a copy made directly from negatives. I don't know. Because that, that image, I've been dying to see that image for real. Because um, in, in subsequent research I've done, I've discovered that the Kanaima region of Venezuela is a huge hotspot of activity. Oh, yeah? In fact, there's a guy down there who has put knows. together a map of all of the anomalous activity that's been going on for 20-some-odd years down there. I know the story... Well, it's told in the book, if you read the... I did read the book. The guy, the guy was camping out or yeah. backpacking or something, and he, he looks out over the uh, the Angel Falls area, there's fog yeah. covering up the falls, but he's up above it looking down. Yeah, I originally and thought it was water. water. You corrected me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. coming down. <laughs> and, and it's clearly, a, you know, in, in, in looking at that beam, I say to people, well, okay, if you're going to fake an image, um, if you're going to fabricate this, for example, and there are a lot of different ways to make what looks like that beam coming down, Chances are, if it was fake, that beam would actually be fairly consistent density throughout, mm-hmm. which would indicate that they had done a simple masking operation in Photoshop and had either filled it with a with a consistent uh, a, a fill uh, of a slow opacity, or done an exposure shift through that soft blend, you know, through a soft mask. And this is just looking at the low res image that's on the cover of the book. It's just driving me crazy because I'm dying to see the larger version of this image. I actually have a. An, um a larger version. It's not compressed as much, and it's got a different different level of exposure, you could say. Really? So I can send you maybe that big. Okay. Which I know is a lot better. Than no, it's <laughs> a lot better than that. Well, I want, right? I want to confirm. I, want to, I think it's a color Xerox version. Well, what I want to confirm is that that beam of light coming down, that beam of whatever it is that's coming down, has an entropic uh, 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 density to it. It, it is not consistent, um, that that density seems to shift regardless of the actual background material, mm-hmm. but that seems to be uh, not completely solid, and as I said, there's, it's an entropic beam. There, there are areas where there is more density to the beam than others, and, and those seem almost random. It, that, that's in the small image I've looked at, which would indicate to me that if it was, you know, if someone had tried to hoax something like that, it would actually require a certain amount of effort to make it that way that mm-hmm. would almost suggest it was beyond a typical hoax. Just like um, you know, Jeff and I had been pulled in to look at uh, 
you know, hair images that have emerged. And uh, there was one image, the first image, that, that, that the very first that emerged. What, what Jeff ended up doing was finding on the web a background plate that at first glance would look like it would have served as a good background plate to manipulate, to create this primary image that surfaced. Mm -hmm. But in doing some really close looking at it, what we determined was, even though the images were, were, were very similar, they were not the same, and in fact we saw um, an optical distortion, you know, a, a bumming effect that seemed to indicate that these two images were shot with different lenses. It really looked mm -hmm. that way. Where again, they were really close, but no cigar. And there were other aspects of the image that were, were very interesting. Um, that indicated again that there was a you know or scaling differences between buildings and different yeah 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 no I mean it, it didn't account for overall ratios right that if you're going to faint this would have required a tremendous amount of sophistication but then what happened was that in the in this image as we're looking through it and it's a JPEG image um, and so with JPEG images you have you know DCT uh, discrete cosine transform uh, algorithms applied to it to do the block compression to do the block averaging. So you expect to see a certain amount of, of, uh, of this is, you know, the block quantization that you see. Contouring. Right. But then what shows up in the image is essentially the equivalent of a signature that is <laughs> hidden in, in the compression. That is actually, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an image that's it's completely symmetrical. It, it's hidden in there. And it really, uh, you know, what we came to the conclusion of is that this is a... And it wasn't channel-specific either. No, it was not like channel-specific at all. was in there. Not at all. So, you know, it, it really looked like, okay, this is... We had heard reports that there was a, a, a pilot that had uh, was taxing a plane, had seen this thing, had pulled out a cell phone camera, had shot an image. We had heard the story. There was no corroboration of this. Mm -hmm. and it's almost as if... And again, there's no... You know, it's hard to, to prove this in any way, but it's almost as if this pilot had submitted the photograph. Well, the signature, and so he'd know it was, know it was his, and if anybody did anything to it. Someone took this thing, added this Steganography. signature. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Basically, the idea being that, okay, so now if an image analyst is going to pro proclaim that this image is genuine and not fabricated, then, mm -hmm. then subsequently, yeah. someone can come out and basically say, look at this, this is a signature we didn't, which indicates this image was tampered with, so now let's discredit these image analysts. Mm -hmm. And this image was sent to uh, abovetopsecret.com with the knowledge that you were their primary image analyst, and I was working with you sort of behind the scenes. Right. And so it's as if this was kind of designed to discredit. And so we see stuff like this, and... But it didn't really affect the overall possible legitimacy. Possible of the, legitimacy? No, not at all. The object that was there, because we, we actually saw atmospheric disturbance around that channel specifically. Right. That would not be accounted for in terms of even you know what what DCTs would do when you have this object that's not complete uh, high threshold transition between that and the background. So you know whenever you have anything where you've got a, a, a what a high frequency differentiation between the background and foreground, when DCTs hit that, you know that is where you will tend to see the block uh, artifacts more mm -hmm. so than in areas of something like ringing tone. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like a, a square halation mm -hmm. where we didn't see that. What we saw appeared to be some sort of atmospheric disturbance around this thing and in a way that was also not symmetrical, um, that extended pretty significantly far away from the object itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that seemed to indicate almost... A, well, what was the background? I mean, this, is, this is a uniform sky background. You could ask the question, if it's perfectly uniform in the background, would you be able to see... 
or notice the variations, presumably due to density, variations in the atmosphere. Right. Well, that's it's interesting because there are multiple layers of these perturbances around this object that, that only come out with extreme processing of the image. Mm -hmm. And taking into account any you know, margin of error that you would get if you start to, you know, because it's a DCT compressed image, so already it's compromised. Right. Right. Um, so you sort of start from that saying, okay, we have to strip away a certain amount of potential noise, essentially. Um, and, you know, not digital noise, but, you know, just, just noise in terms of there are going to be artifacts of the compression that will make us think one thing. But then stripping that away, no, you know, there's a good reason to believe that this image is a legitimate anomalous thing. But now someone has manipulated it and tampered with it so that essentially... It's almost it, what Jeff and I had talked about was that it's almost as if other images emerge that back this image up. That this image will then be revealed to be a hoax, thereby discrediting any other images that potentially are similar to this or match up in any way. Well, Which plenty of hoaxes that came out. Of that. Well, there's tons of very bad take hoaxes. The, <laughs> take the attitude that um, it's a real picture with the signature stuck in. But for some reason, the person wants to claim it's a hoax, right. even though it's a real picture. Okay. Right. Yeah. Which would fall in line with the way the airline behaved. Yeah, yeah right. Behaved all that. Yeah. You know, and then not long after that, I think it was probably less than a week okay. after that whole thing wrapped up, all right, we got a series of four shots from a kid in Illinois near the wow. south. Yeah, Bruce would love to see those photos. Because those photos are fascinating. Because right. I just got the uncompressed ones from above top stage. Oh, you did? Mark Allen. There are four shots. Daylight. Beautiful day. The woman's walking along. What was her son? It's a trail. Was her, her son? Her son is the one that sent them to us. Oh, okay. The we have his ID. We don't have her ID. Because he didn't want her finding out that he had sent them into mm. us. She didn't want anything to do with them. She was going to erase them, and she, he begged her not to. And before she could, he took them off the camera. It looks very much like the same kind of shaped object from mm -hmm. her Very similar, but it was taken some months before. And she is walking along the path. Uh, there's, a, there's a rail fence. There's a hedgerow trees in front of her, I guess, presumably to her left, the direction she was walking. And this thing comes from this direction flies forward. The very last shot, when the guy sent it to me, he said, I don't know what you want to do with this fourth one. Maybe it's just good for scale for you, because I don't see and the And that ended up being the key shot, right? Yeah. And I was like, this is the money shot, because the disc, uh, or whatever the pill-shaped object, pretty pretty prevalent in the other three, but in the fourth one, it's hidden behind a tree, and you get about that much of it hmm. that you see. And my thought immediately is, if I'm going to fake something, damn it if I'm yeah. going to let it be awful looking like that. Yeah, right. You know? So when we looked at them, again, there was no anything that pointed to anything. Digital manipulation, the, the, uh, there was no EXIF data in it no. to really be looked at. This was all just a cell phone. But they're unusually good. They're a little grainy, but they're unusually good, and they're daytime. Mm. So, uh, you know, I never did know what to make of that. We just included that in with the, you know, there seems to be something going on with this shaped object in Illinois. So when you send Bruce those images, you'll also send him your images that you that, shot. That we still haven't got to him, and yeah. we've been discussing that issue a lot yeah. lately. And it's odd that, and this is a whole sort of a subtopic, and that just me to send these images for the better part of a year now. Yeah, last, last uh, summer. <laughs> last summer. Yeah. So This is stuff you saw, you had a sighting yourself? Yeah, yeah. So, and they're not bad shots. They're, they're not bad shots. I mean, they do show <laughs> some sort of an object that seems to have a concave uh, underneath. Uh, yeah. 
Very interesting. 13 of them. Yeah. 13 shots. Oh, sequence so of shots. It's 13 until I couldn't see it anymore in the viewfinder. And I was like, well, there's no point to... It's not coming back. The problem so. is, you know, I was getting to the point where I don't have enough time. I'm retiring from the Navy after 36 years. Wow. At the end of next week. Wow. Excellent. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> so maybe I'll have more time, but also I'm planning to move to Nashville, so that's going to take up time. And pictures and videos are coming out of the woodwork now. Yeah. I just yeah. got a collection of stuff from the Roswell Museum. Could you please look at We're getting a whole bunch of stuff. We don't know what to do with it. Could you please look at this? So they sent me 200, two megabytes worth of stuff or something like that. It's all compressed, of course. So it's, right. it's a pile of pictures. And I, you know, try to offer my opinion in 10 seconds or less. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. McAbee said they're good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why Nashville? Hmm? Why Nashville? Get on there and make music. Yeah. Oh, all right. That makes sense. He's got to get a contract. Yeah. And we'll say we knew it when. <laughs> yeah. uh, wow. All righty. Very good. Thank you, Bruce. Good talk. You're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have to have you back on the show soon at some point. You know, there used to be only two ways, neighbors, to meet for business. Over the phone or in person. Well, now there's a better way. Use GoToMeeting to meet online. With GoToMeeting, everyone sees your computer desktop on their computer screen. So you get the best of both worlds. It's like meeting in person, but without wasting time and money traveling. And you know what the airlines are doing these days. It's a complete mess. And remember this, your conference calls will be more effective. The best part is that you can try GoToMeeting free right now for 30 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Jeremy, David, you're not bar hoppers, are you? No. So why do you give me a segment of the show recorded in a bar well it's strictly one bar that we're in so we're not really bar hoppers right but basically we're sitting there uh eating and drinking and whooping it up and trying to uh, avoid the conference at all costs <laughs> and uh you know there's a guy who's got his own i don't remember his name maybe you do uh who had his own little radio show who's drunk Chris as a Wood. skunk at the end of the bar but not was he drunk uh, so i don't want to say he that was by the that. end of it i mean I, like hours later he was still there oh. so at some point oh. he was drunk i think that's fair to say that would be uh, uh, rick wood and Audio Martini is the podcast. Wood? Okay. Yes. Well, anyway, he seemed like a nice enough guy, and he was yeah. chatting us up. And then all of a sudden, curlyish, gray-haired gentleman comes up to the bar and sits down next to me. And, uh, you know, we say hi. And then he sort of spots Dave and says, that Dave Biedney? I'm like, yeah. And he goes over and introduces himself. And, Dave, what happened next? Well, I was uh, sitting at the bar, and I was touching my girlfriend's thigh, and... It's a lovely thigh, and I like their thigh. And in fact, I like both her thighs. And uh, um, anyway, oh, I got a snap out of that. Well, this guy walks up to me now. I had recognized him, and I leaned over to Jeff and I said, "Dude, is that like Jim Delatoso?" And Jeff's like, "No, no, 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 that's not Jim." So, like minutes later, this guy comes walking up to me. David Bietti, are you David Bietti? I'm like, yeah, and you would be, ah, it's Jim Delatoso. I've heard a lot about you from Michael McKay, and I heard all about your little Microsoft gig in Amsterdam, and I'm like, oh, Jesus, McKay's been rapping again. 
So um, McKay is an old buddy of mine. We ended up working on a project uh, for Microsoft in Amsterdam, and let's just say there were a lot of stories from that project. Anyway, McKay knows Dilatoso for years, have been talking me up at some point to Dilatoso for whatever reasons, and uh, so Jim came over to introduce himself, and it turns out we have a few close mutual friends. It's kind of strange how that works. Mm-hmm. So um, he is not so- one of the bad guys, is he? Well, so the answer to that is that, you know, let's qualify this. So uh, what ended up happening was we wanted to talk to him then. He's like, oh, yeah, let's let's do an interview later on. Let's say, like, after 10 o'clock, and let's do it uh, right outside here at the bar, you know. And so there's, like, this big seating area. So what ended up happening later that evening, we reconvened in this area, and it was loud. I mean, there were basically people talking. There were people getting drunk. At one point, I was getting really frustrated. I got up and asked these guys to move because they were standing right behind us, and they were just, like, being very loud. And then there's this part where uh, another good buddy of Jim Dilatoso's, a one Mr. Rob Simone schmuck, ends up walking up. Uh, you know, Dilatoso's like, oh, you got to be on his show, uh, telling me that I should be on Simone's show. You got to be on his show. You got to meet my buddy Rob Simone. Now, I qualify this. I know who Simone is. I'd never met him before. I didn't want to beat him. I, I got the vibe from the guy that he's just not, not certainly not trustworthy. Well, suffice to say, Simone sits down with us and we start going at it with him. And you'll hear the part, hopefully, Gene, you left in the part where Dr. Sue leans across and goes, well, let me just get this straight. You're just a paranormal paparazzi, which I love you, honey. You're brilliant. That was one of the best lines of the whole weekend for me, paranormal paparazzi. And uh, and then we started getting into discussing the one-armed Swiss hoaxer. And let's just say that there's a twist where I kind of lost it. You know, I just want to okay. qualify this. Sure. I had had a couple of drinks, all right, which is pretty unusual for me. I already had some bad vibes about Simone. I have Jeremy there. I have Jeff there. I got Susan there. I'm feeling pretty good, but the guy just rubbed me the wrong way. And in the end, he showed himself to be a cancer on the body of this field of research. He's a cancer that needs some intense radioactive chemotherapy aimed right at him. Because he is an example of the reason that it is so difficult to have any kind of rational discussion in this field. And I know that at this moment, the way I'm talking, the way we're all talking here, some of our listeners are going, well, it's not like you guys are being rational either. But, you know, I happen to think that Jeremy means well. We obviously like Jeremy. That's why we're doing this thing with the Culture of Contact podcast. I listen to that podcast. I enjoy the podcast. I enjoy Jeremy's blog, even when I get into fights with morons on there, but, you know, Jeff is, well, interesting point there, Susan meets Jeff for the first time, and at the end of it, Susan said to me, he's such a nice guy, and now I understand why you guys are so tight, and now I also know that everything he's saying about his experiences is the truth. A little bit of a warning about this session, by the way, and that is because it's a barroom setting, there's a lot of background noise, I did a little massaging. Okay, it's kind of hard to massage human voices against human voices. So it is understandable to me. But once it's compressed and streamed, you may have difficulty understanding it. If that's the problem, well, I'm sorry. We, if we ever have the time, we'll try to massage it first. No, no, no. First. No, there's, there's, no, there's no problem here. Just have two or three screwdrivers while you're listening to it. Have a few beers. 
or whatever else you do to, to inebriate yourselves a little bit, and it'll be just like you're there with us. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Jim Deltoso, we have heard for a couple of years now, at least I've heard, and I know Jeff has, Jeff Ritzman has heard this longer than I have. I'm only really involved in playing in the sandbox for the last couple of years, but um, whenever people who follow the Billy Meyer case reference photographs, photographic evidence, yes, which has really been the cornerstone of the entire case, essentially. You are referenced as the image analyst who's provided proof for the validity of the entire body of photographic quote-unquote evidence. You are the person who, who basically, certainly Michael Horn refers to as the sort of the, the, the technical ref, the technical foundation of being the person who says that these images are legitimate, they're real, they're not hoaxes. And um, there is no attempt on the part of Horn or the other Meyerites yes. to delineate, let's say, earlier image versus later images, or, or to really delineate any of the images. Basically, they're presented as one big bucket, and that you have staked your professional credibility on the idea, the notion that these things are legitimately paranormal and, even more so, extraterrestrial. What's your feeling about that? I never say something is extraterrestrial. I say it's unknown. I have a database of known things. I've been accumulating since I first started. And in the 70s, the equipment that I had available was that which we would rent until I bought some. I went and saw a lot of experts. All I know is what I did, not what he says I did. So, in the 70s, doing testing... Well, how'd you get involved? Before we can get into that yeah. level of detail, how'd you get pulled into this situation? I owned a rock and roll touring company, somewhat famous, and we did noted bands, and we did noted sound, and we had very advanced analysis equipment for doing acoustical analysis of a coliseum before we would go in. We did... 
Blues, Beach Boys, Alice Cooper, lots and lots of bands. We had three systems, and we had a lot of measurement equipment for calibrating the system. So you don't tour in the winter. There's snow, there's ice, there's rain to find other stuff. We had truckloads of power amps, generators, lights, and test equipment. I rented out. I rented out my gear a couple times to the Voyager project at Jet Propulsion Laboratory so we could interface the, quote, Ramtech equipment to convert it to Umatic video for handing out to the press. Three-quarter inch Umatic. While we were there, I met a guy named Socrates Ballas who was producing a documentary on the Shroud of Turin. And he wanted us to create a visual video display output from the iridium equipment. And I did that. And through him, we met John Stefanelli, who was a member of MUFON, 1976. Wanted us to develop a process for analyzing pictures. I said, okay, it'll take me two years. I'll be back in two years. I'm going to find out what's out there, what equipment. So I came back at the end of two years and gave a report on what labs, Navy labs, medical equipment manufacturers, white papers, SPIE, et cetera, et cetera. They said, okay, let's apply it. So then we spent a year and put together a team to test pictures. That team included optical scientists from University of Arizona, people from manufacturers, about 10 guys, headed by a guy named Rick Gerdes, who was president of OEI, the, the Brook Tree graphics chip of that era. I uh, used to be at Bird Brown. And uh, he headed the committee. We did tests of the APRO set of 40. APRO preceded MUFON. It was the big PhD group of the 50s and 60s. Uh, we tested their group of 40 pictures, determined which were probably mistakes, which were hoaxes, by a number of methods, including uh, going to special effects people, Linwood Dunn, at Film Effects of Hollywood, Linwood Dunn, Wally Gentleman, we saw John Dykstra, we saw Doug Trumbull. I didn't just go read a magazine. Right. went to see people. So we did the process. That, that put us at the end of three years. At that point, we were handed four Billy Meyer pictures with about 50 other pictures to do round two. Round two. And the results got sent out to people at JPL, and they made comments on it, and Bob Nathan and other people, all who signed non-disclosures. We've never heard of you. No, we're not doing this on JPL time. So later, when people contacted them back and said, were you testing UFO pictures? They were, oh, no. Yeah, plausible deniability. Yeah, no, absolutely not right. But that put us at the end of three years, and we went through looking for very specific things, data. Histograms is pretty much Sobel, Edge, and histogram-based. I mean, that's the foundation. It all works out from there. So we uh, did not find, quote, evidence of a hoax. And uh, we didn't get a, a match in the database. So we don't get a match in the database. doesn't mean it's extraterrestrial. It so, means that we didn't get a match in our database at that time. Now, at that time, we had only spent 
a year creating the normals. Real airplane, photograph, close far. Build a scale model, close far. Car, close far. Model, close far. UFO models, close far. Unknowns, compare the edges, that's first. As we know, basketball at arm's length and the moon at arm's length and they're both this big, the way that you make this one look like a basketball is have fewer lines of longitude and latitude. The more lines of longitude and latitude in a paint-by-number kit, the bigger it looks. That's how a painter does it. That's how we pull the filters out. So, so basically it's an issue of scale. It's an issue of scale and, and, and like lighting. In, in 3D, you'd be talking about the number of polygons, essentially. Yeah, the number of polygons. Correct. Well, if you're going to simulate something large, Jim. So uh, basically what we're talking about here is a technique by where, certainly in 3D, when you do real 3D, yeah. you build a model and you try, the more you increase the polygon count you. of the model, right. bigger the denser the model is because it literally is Absolutely. bigger inside of its 3D space. And things like, you know, the light, the, 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 the spatial frequency of the light, if it's a small object, the sun's going to fill the top up. Uh, if it's a small object, you get a glint, etc., etc. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff. Those pictures at that time for what we tested, using pretty good equipment. I mean, uh, a Gould 9000 and the N6400 was pretty good for at that time. And other than the resolution, it's pretty much the same now. I mean, you know, uh, uh, media cybernetics, etc., etc., is this time-saving, but... Fourier transforms are Fourier transforms. They are what they are. Histograms are histograms. It's just an issue of speed at this point. Right. We're talking about. So, right. We, on those pictures, I didn't authenticate them as extraterrestrial spacecraft. I said we found no evidence of a hoax. And that's what I wrote up. About. Now, but let's qualify that for a moment. Yeah. So when you say no evidence of a hoax, right. what you're then stating is that, okay, so... Here we, and, and let's just get an idea of what images we're talking about. Because this goes back to, I guess, the earliest Meyer images. Right. There was a, one we called the log pile scene. It's a hill off in the distance, log pile trees. And we went out there with um, surveying equipment, stand the spot, survey the distance, you know, uh, to the trees, look at the edges, focus field indexing, like in animation. Right. Sure. All, all given edges of different properties that are the same or the same distance away. That's right. how you paint on glass. Well, that's what we did there. We make a focus field index. Every tree, every branch, every hill, every everything, and create a huge data table of edges. Then the edges of the unknown. Well, based on that, first we say, well, it fits into this table. Well, you can take a small object and put it out of focus and do that. Sure. You know, so force perspective. There's a lot of issues, but at that time it was each picture was an average of 20 man hours with good gear and good approach. I mean, that's it's like doing fingerprints, it's like doing blood. You have a database of knowns, and you you run through that set of tests. And if you don't have those antivirus routines in your McAfee or Norton, you're not going to be protected against it. You're not going to find it. It's basically an index issue. Right. Right. It's a lookup table and indexing. So 
pictures after that, issues after that. I wasn't asked to do it. I respond to work from investigators. I never analyze anything from the people doing the tests. I'm taking the pictures themselves. So unless I'm asked by an investigator and they give me certain quality of materials, for the first few years it was like I'll do whatever they have but that's what, that's what they got that's what they got but I've got a business to run and lots of people to deal with so we set blocks of time aside and we had a, we had a Cray YMP48 and a bunch of processing stuff it's a really outstanding software and 100 people working it's like okay let's take 2,000 man hours and we'll map it out in the next six months and you know give us everything you got but no one cares no one cares really the Meyer case there was never any distinguishing criticism of the testing that was done except by one guy Cal Corp who mysteriously came up with what he said Richard Haynes did and Bruce McAbee did uh, which we later found out that he never did any of that with any of them so it was not our job to go after somebody else going after the case we did our analysis we did our stuff it is what it is to interpret what it is or isn't that's not what we do so, so let's get down to what you found yeah so you have these images these just craft yeah what was determined scale only in one of them could we determine its uh, probable size with a 40% probability that it was between, it was around 20 feet. There was another 40% probability that it was between uh, like 15 and 25 feet. Or 15 and 18. Where was the scale? log pile scene was one. No, the log pile scene, there wasn't enough uh, edge resolution for us to be able to determine that. Okay, what were the other? Uh, it was the one, I uh, forget what it's called, the Hassan Bowl or something. It's where there's a tree and the sun and the craft. Uh, shot into the sun? Right. Yes. Was it shot into the sun or was well, the it? The sun was working over the top of the disc. The sun was behind, wasn't it behind the uh, back of the photographer? Did we have, this is the one we have, the, the bear tree, no leaves on it. Could have been. Yeah, that was shot. And I've looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures, going back to that one. I've seen them in magazines and books and stuff before. When you have film and you get a copy negative, there's one really good thing that you can do out of that. Is you can look at the film grain under a microscope in between the sprocket holes. Because if the image has been step printed optically, it's an image with its film grain and an image with its film grain in the image area, not, not out in between sprockets. the right. So if it's whatever it is in there compared to whatever it is out there is one thing. If you've got the alleged original or second, but every time you make a copy out in the sprocket holes, you're getting nothing, okay? Right. So however many grain patterns you have in the image area compared to what's out in the sprocket area tells you how many times it's been step printed. It's straight ahead. That's all there is. And it's just pattern. All grains of all levels of film of each batch of film are identical. So if you have three different batches of grain, it's a third step. If you've got two, it's two. If you've only got one, that's the way it is. And um, histograms, you know, you can appreciate this uh, about um, histograms. I don't know what a histogram is. They say, where's a histogram? You can say, well, 
It's taking the information out of the color and the brightness, and it's like it's like doing color spectrograms. Sure, I, I refer to it as a statistical analysis. Right, but it's population analysis. What is the population of the pixel count along right. every notch right. of the brightness range? Brightness and the co- brightness of different colors. Of different, well, different God forbid I should use the name color spectrum because astronomers go wacko. Well, let's let's talk about imaging processing. Different color channels, component channels of an overall image made up of a bunch of composite channels. Component channels. We're not talking about composite layers. Or distinction. And the chance that someone would, under different lighting conditions, with different batch of film, get the same histogram on the object that they're going to insert, the same palette is one in fifty. It's it's certainly not one out of two. I mean, it's it's difficult doing composite match shots, particularly if the guy's got one arm and his little camera. So you got to think it out. What is he doing? How's he now? How would he be doing? There's an important note we have to make here. Yeah. This is with the assumption that we're talking about that he did. images. Well, not even that. Images created in a composite process versus. Miniatures or, or yeah. stuff that's being done in camera, yeah. not as a post process. Yeah, right. That could be too. Right. Then we then the edges and the contour. These are all possible things, and they're all good points to raise. All I know is what we did back then. Right. You know, and what we did back then that we did another pass on. Oh, maybe two years later. I didn't have the negatives anymore. We had they were digitized for us at USC. We took the images over and used their uh, drum scanner, and it was I think it was I think we paid I'm gonna laugh about four hundred dollars an image. It's about right for the time. Yeah, yeah. But now and, this brings uh, up an important point. But they weren't mine to further test. Right. But you actually had access then to something no one has ever had access to what was on that? these early images, original, even inter internet film. There's never been we uh, Jeff and I have both requested. Oh, Billy will get it out. No, we have. Uh, Wendell has some of those uh, internegatives. Yeah, see, we've asked for those like countless times. Yeah. Because, you know, going up and, against torrents. And, and we're, we're told yeah. they don't exist. Yeah, exactly. They're lost, it's all been lost. Or they don't exist. The originals from Billy don't exist anymore? That's correct. Yeah. That's what that's what they're you know, I can't speak to that. I don't know. Right. Well, that's convenient if you don't want someone to look at the original data. Right. So, you know, at this point, what we really have are... What lithographs made from the photos right. off of monitors from the NTT documentary piece? I mean, you're talking about many generations removed. We have to draw an important distinction between any early imagery you saw, yeah. and then the subsequent imagery, including what many of us would say are the ridiculous wedding cake photos. Which, I mean, what what is your initial take on those photos? When you see those pictures, what do you think? You know which ones I'm referring to. It doesn't make sense that someone that would attempt to take images and, and fool people would not have the eye to see that they look just rookie fake. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a bad job. 
So you go, you go. Okay, if Billy Meyer and his constituents are faking it, and they could do those others that were marginal good, and you really got to get into it to figure it out, how can they let something this bad slip through? And not just a couple of images, but you know, dozens, maybe hundreds of them. In my particular case, Horn. Offered me an image, sent me an image, one of the uh, the light ship thing shot at night over cars, supposedly over, I guess, part of the house, where it's pretty obvious, A, this incredibly luminous object is casting no light on the cars, on the ground, on anything. Um, which is, of course, inconsistent with reality. Yeah. Um, and then in doing an interchannel comparison, the red, green, and blue channels of this thing became very obvious in the green channel, the detailed channel of the image, was a series of uh, shapes. I shouldn't say shapes. It was a, a rather obvious image of a curtain draped over some sort of a surface with this light fixture. Yeah. And what I've heard now is, is a Swiss light fixture available at the time was basically laying down on this dark platform with fabric over it. You can see the striations of the fabric very clearly. And this was basically a either a multiple exposure, which I suspect it was, or a multiple layer composite. I'm guessing it was a multiple exposure. It has that look, and there was some light bleed happening on one edge of the frame where it looked like whatever wherever the space was that the light fixture was shot on top of the platform, there was a door open, and there was light leakage, and the harsh edge of the door in the multiple exposure image creates a very distinct, bright line that could never be... It's, it shows up in a part of the background plate where there's no architectural element. Got this... Um, bright white line and it's just silly and there are multiple images that have this problem in that series uh, looking at I mean we can go down the list of problems with the wedding cake images you know the scales obviously go wrong and then in the nighttime wedding For cake strange shots, looking pictures you've got well I mean they're just ridiculous you have you have this whatever the lights that were used to shoot this little miniature model are clearly reflecting on the globes around this thing and you can see it's three lights you know there is no sense of the kind of appropriate certainly atmospherics that you would expect but more importantly the reflections of these lights show that these lights are relatively close to the object and again they're reflecting in the spheres I mean we can go down this list so in your opinion then you've seen these wedding cake photos you don't think these are full size craft do you? a subjective brain, mind, eye thing that says these are little objects. Right. Then there's a data model, which I haven't done, and sometimes my eye-brain combo gets fooled, you know, and the data tells me something different, but I've gotten pretty good, you know, over the decades at doing compositing and retouching and things, and uh, that subjective eye tells me that those are small objects. To get real data out of those, you know that you need. A, I mean, you can do second generation, third generation if you know what you're doing and the copies were well done and you know what you're going to go for. But you uh, even the small thickness of the film, even a contact print, they're going out of focus. You're losing focus. Yeah, 
Eventually, we could transcribe this to text, and then we could do a text-to-speech conversion. So we could take females of my voice, and then yours, you could be me for a while, and then I'll be you for a while. Yeah, it should be fine. I interviewed yeah. somebody when it was full of people talking. You can get us a nice hardware vocoder, yeah. a vote vocoder, and do that. You can also just write it and say, Jim said. But then we could write lots of things. You can call each other. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but the thing is... Are you insane? Yeah, that's right. So, Jim, the point is that when Horn specifically references you, he doesn't talk about you looked at this particular, particular image or that particular image. No. You've looked at the images. You've designated them as genuinely paranormal in nature. That's not what I ever said. That's a mischaracterization. What I did was analyze four oh, pictures. That's a shocker. Mischaracterization? Horn, yeah. To the stock. A number of other people that also did the test. One of my jobs was to synthesize the results of others who had signed non-disclosures. And as the years went on, and everyone knows who they are, Bob Nathan came out of the closet and told the world he tested UFO pictures of all kinds. At JPL, Bob Nathan, Bob Post, and, and others. Uh, Wally Gentleman. But uh, I would never characterize something as extraterrestrial. I don't know if it's extraterrestrial. Even if I saw a movie of it landing and the door opened and someone walks out, there's a lot of really fantastic flint, flame, inferno compositing houses that could make it look indistinguishable Absolutely. for what we could analyze, okay? There's uh, no reason for me to think that this human behavior of Billy Myers is any different than anyone else that I think may have had contact. They want to tell a lot of other people. They want to investigate more. They want to share more. They want to talk. They want to find out. And people get involved with them who begin to speak for them. But do people who want to share information then require that people who follow their information pay a percentage of their income into a fund? Billy's never done that. Uh, it's part of the FIGU charter. They absolutely do. I can show you the documents. Okay, but that could be FIGU. That's not necessarily Billy. If their the, mailing the, address the is his home. Yeah. I mean, this is where it's like, you know, the mafia guy. Yeah. Right? It, well, you know, he does get mail at his home, but you can take, go contact him down the social club. Yeah. He's there. They're two separate addresses. I, mean, I don't know how to speak to that. From when the era that I know. Right. Years ago. And, you know, Clark Higgins and Roger Davis went over to visit Billy. I don't know if they did. Yeah, Clark was talking about this. They yeah. went there, and uh, I have a lot of other personality models to go by. You know, heuristic studies of how do people behave in a murder case, in a robbery case, in, in UFO cases. What do they do? How do people behave when they've really seen something that phenomenal? Usually their intelligence and creativity increases just a little bit, present company included. Okay. <laughs> they allow, if they've never been people of prestige or noted for anything. They allow people around them to kind of take over and manage them and hero worship them and become part of it. I don't think Billy would know how to make a model. He, he may allow it to be covered up if he found out that it happened. I don't think he would direct it because the kind of things that he writes are not in character with the kind with those kind of actions, the kind of philosophical things. Now that's just at first blush. If I had to go into court 
this about whether it was it this guy or that guy that killed that guy based on their behavior and their motivation. And you can be fooled a lot. But in this case, there was other evidence. The metal samples provided by Billy Meyer to us were startling. Startling. To the degree where we didn't care about photographs anymore. Really didn't matter. Because when three different labs say this is atomic elements 1 through 59, including inert gas, noble gases, and inert substances, all in the same, all in the same sample, 1 through 59, when you look at the spectrum analog, how could this be? And uh, Marcel Vogel, being one key person, said, there were hours of interviews with them and the direct transfers of the electron microscope looking at organic, biofringent material interlaced into metals that burn at, or melt at 2,600, 3,000 degrees. How can it be? We don't know how to do that. So, remember, I only got three months at a time to do this, hit the road to put rock and roll, and then go back and do it again and, and try to get some other investigations done. And I started steering them to people. That was my job, was to steer the people. So I would leave the winter well, work that we were about, doing. About the metal, as far as the metal goes, I've heard tell that there were, literally, the, the stuff was laid out on a tarp. I laid, it out. I laid it out. What happened? And videotaped it. About half of it still exists. The other half was mixed with control samples and sent out to labs. So it's all this analysis work. And Marcel Vogel, yeah. metallurgist? No. No. Guy was spe- Other metallurgists got it. Yes. Where are those reports? Here's one thing that happens. If extraterrestrials are actually coming here and military and paramilitary, retired military people were involved, none of it is for the general community. None of it gets anywhere. They use the general UFO community to collect stuff and suck it up to the top and field gather it, to gather the information and do analysis and do things with it, as I discovered after about 10-plus years of going in and out of labs at EG&G and Wackenhut and many, many places that it never comes back down. You know, and that they'll do whatever they can to get an army of MUFON and APRO and this group and that group collecting field reports, collecting photographs, collecting materials to send up. They're never going to come back down. It's, it's not something that's owned by the UFO clubs. And it's, all I can do is armchair watch it and go, God, well, that's that's 20 years of my life of stuff that just kind of went by. And what was I thinking? So and about half of that metal still exists. Where yeah. was it taken? Where was it sent? Do you know? Yeah. Uh, well, some samples were sent to uh, metallurgy lab, uh, U.S. testing labs, um, Henry Monteith a uh, noted uh, fusion metallurgist at uh, Sandia Laboratories. Wendell Stevens and I personally delivered it to him. University of Arizona, I think his name was Walker, Wendell's backyard, and uh, primary metallurgist there at the university, material scientist. Some of the plants sent back to Meyer that you know of. I mean, did any of it go back to him? It's possible. I mean, you know, Lee Elders has an illustrious career, history in, in intelligence. And the fact that Wendell was called in by a European retired military intelligence officer 
somebody going, oh, okay, you can come in and try to do that today. Somebody was really paying attention to that, to that situation. And uh, I don't know what becomes of the samples of the reports. It was not up to me. I do know that some of the places that we went and went back over and over again, someone was pulling strings for us to get in there because you don't just saunter into those places. And, uh, take well, was it about getting in there so they could get a hold of material and spear it away? I mean, was that why the doors were open? I can't speak to that. You don't know. I mean, my perspective 20-plus years ago is different than it is now. Right. 59 now. I was in my 20s then when I started. As time evolved, many of the cases that I've seen over the years that are really good cases, absolute. I've watched the investigators, the witnesses, and the evidence just be destroyed. Careers destroyed. Nobody comes and threatens you. You're just all of a sudden, oh, Kenny, how is that? You know, it's like black helicopters came over. Trying to find someone saying that's happening, that's nonsense. If anyone's going to do anything to you, it just it just happens. And some of the better cases that had evidence, I just saw go away. Meyer case had really good evidence at the very beginning. And uh, what happened at the end? Uh, who knows where those people came from? Live there now. Who knows? Nobody polices anyone that's the European or the American representative of Billy Meyer. No one says, hey, what's the information you're putting out there, Michael Horn? Is it true? Is it correct? What did you say? Let me, I think if Billy Meyer saw any of the letters or any of his people at FIGA who saw the letters, the correspondence or things, he wouldn't be their representative anymore. I don't think that he operates in the same spirit and intent. And that happens in a lot of cases. There's become layers of people that are opportunists that just come in and take it and say whatever they want under any conditions because nobody polices them. There's no quality control over what happened to the evidence and they like that. They like that. That there are mean-spirited vigilantes that will just go in and, and wreck it. So the Meyer case has been through so many iterations of stuff. All I know is that what I did, no evidence of a hoax, no match in the data table. Certainly did not endorse the case. Never been to a meeting. Don't have any of the literature. I don't Never get, been to Switzerland. Don't get no. Don't get Christmas cards from Billy Meyer. Don't know Michael Warren. Never met Michael Warren. Have had email with Michael Warren a couple of times. Have, have called them up and said, "Why are you all selling a confidential in-house report that I wrote in 1979 for thirty dollars on your website?" gives you the right to sell it. Why don't you say it's 1979? So they're not forward about that. There is no indication of that. No, it doesn't say the date on it. It makes it look like something I did last year or whatever. And the processes that are in there and some of the equipment, you know, many of those companies don't even exist anymore. You know, when was the last time you used a Joyce Lebel scanner? You know? I mean, many, many, many of the companies 
companies don't exist. I mean, what happened to... See, Ramtech is gone, Gould is gone, Deanne's is gone, and 50 others are gone. Via Video is gone, remember how cool they were? A short live company, uh, the graphics cards, all, all the stuff that's all changed and gone. The formats for the digitized images, the tapes, the digitized tapes, I think we are running 1,600 bits per inch, remember it was a measure? Bits per inch. Yeah, you, you couldn't read those now. Well, there are houses now that, that well, transfer. Yeah, keep, well, yeah, we yeah. can't read. Yeah, you can't read. I mean, they need to go to a specialized facility. Be transfer. It's got you know dinosaur. The thing that's really key is, to me, is some of those cases will never unravel. But to have a process, or even this guy specialized in one thing, he's another thing, he's another thing. These five guys look at a really important case and say, "Here's stuff that's going on now." It's like even looking at Roswell. What are you going to do? I mean, if you prove it's a hoax, prove it's extraterrestrial, what are you going to do? It has nothing to do with today. So I just do what I do. I extract my little numbers out of pictures and compare them to a database. If I get a match, I say what it is. Sometimes it's important. Sometimes I even get paid. Never in UFO research, though. Never. Not one time ever for anything. Not research, not production, not news, nothing, ever. So would you say, as you've been mischaracterized by the people that, that do the Meyer case, which I would say your work's been I've never read any of it or seen it, so I don't know how it's characterized. Well, in that respect, when I look at, like, what Tony Ortega wrote in the Phoenix Times about it. Cal Corp's buddy. of phone calls to Tom Kelly, Jeff Payton, a radio guy known as Erskine, and Richard Motzer. Dozens of phone calls as told to us by Tom Kelly's wife that they would sit around the kitchen of the speakerphone with meetings with Cal Korf, Korf giving him names of media people that, well, if you try Channel 12, we'll get him with this, we'll get him with that. So Korf is giving them his opinion, his slant, his point of view, night after night after night after night for with what Charla Kelly thought was months, was turned down by every newspaper, every radio, every television place except the free entertainment paper in Phoenix. That's what the New Times is. God love them. I've known Jim Larkin and... Mike Lacey for, for, for 25 years that run that, but it's a free, you know, movie and bar guide. That's what the New Times is. It's not a journalistic newspaper. You know, it's a it's a, it's a drinking guide, the movie guide that did an expose on the Phoenix Lights based on what Cal Corp says. And if you read the body of the paper, you'll see big blocks. So, so you think a lot of that was put in there about all kinds of stuff about it, and it's not. I mean, you, you went over the spectrum, the spectrum of stuff right now. I mean, you've already, you've already said it. I never said that. That, that, that whole we all know that you have to make analogies to people, like a reporter. Right. So when I say, well, did you ever hear of spectrum analysis in audio? Or you've got, you ever hear of an oscilloscope? I mean, you got to go down to sixth grade sometimes and talk to people. And that gets mischaracterized when I say we're doing color 
spectrum analysis. The only way I can tell the difference between that light and that light by analyzing the brightness value of the red, green, and blue content of each channel. And even if it was nothing except the lights, and we could tell if it's on a dimmer, is it turned all the way up, is it oscillating, is it disturbing, tell a thousand things, a candle, a strobe light, a car light, a headlight, a mist, all that. It's a histogram. Histogram sounds like... Explain to it. So, in very simple example, we take the color components out of the lights because it's all we have to deal with. If you've got film and video of dark lights at night, that's all you got. You're going to analyze the lights. Well, what are you going to analyze? How big they are, frame to frame? Did they change? What's the brightness? What's the color? What about the edges? And then you run out of stuff. So uh, they turned that around to say that you were doing spectral analysis they, on video. Right, that I thought I was doing spectrum analysis like they do in astronomy of a star on video. Never said it. Never. In fact, I even I named the software. I said I used Media Cybernetics. We wrote software. Do you remember Media Cybernetics? We just Bill Strom. Yeah. Bill's was a good friend of mine. We wrote a lot of version two for Bill. So it's not like I kind of know what's going on. I really know what's going on. Way down at really deep levels. So for him to say, you know, that we thought we claimed we were doing spectrum analysis with videotape, it was like silly. But then it got by Cal Corp lifted up out of that newspaper and circulated around the chat rooms and UFO minds as if it was the new. It's everywhere. <laughs> Do y'all know Rob Simone? No, we actually have Rob Simone, another radio show host. Yeah, Rob's been on radio for a long, long time. From Beirut, from Lebanon and BBC. And Excellent. He would like to interview you for his show. No, I don't think so. Why not? Nah. Come on. Nah, he doesn't want to. Yeah, 
he does. Can't you see in his eyes? He's my producer. <laughs> nah, that's not true. He's produced a lot for me. Well, he's not your producer. He is today. <laughs> right now. We talked about it. We talked about it actually this afternoon. Yeah. Uh, after I talked to you, we talked about it. Uh, you know, after I after the first time I left, I talked to yeah. Rob. Oh yeah. And asked if I said that you would be guys would be really you know good interview because. I mean, you know what he's doing, and you know what they're doing. Yeah, but I mean, that's what I do. And try to. We'll do, we don't know what you are. Though. I mean, we kind of know what you're doing. We have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a doctor. The infamous doctor. <laughs> not one that keeps injections. Uh huh. my friend because Bosnia. What? Italian, right? Vini, uh, green. Close enough. Close enough. Italian, so, green. Okay. We got the Adriatic Sea, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Representing. Consciousness and it's the same guest as Coast, and I produced it from LA. Okay, yeah. So you, uh, you 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 actually interviewed Billy Meyer over the phone. I've spoken with Billy, and he agreed to an interview, but I have to go to Switzerland to do it because his English is not great. Although it is pretty good. Yeah. But he just doesn't like doing it over the phone. But I know a lot of key people around him, and yeah, he's he'll, he'll let me go. I, should, I just got to pony up the uh, ticket for the. Uh, uh, the airplane. That, that's it. Oh, so you haven't actually got it. Okay. No, I, I really need to go. It really, it really bugs me because he's a legend. This guy. I mean, this case is the. There's ufology, and then there's Billy Meyer because there's the Talmud of Emmanuel that he dug up, which is the which is the new New Testament, which is supposedly, according to Pleiadians, the most important book humans can read. Right. And what do you think about that? I think it's fascinating. I think there's some interesting work done on it. Uh, I think that uh, his story it involves, of course, not only the Palladians, but time travel and politics and scientific discovery. So, Rob, why do you respond when you see photos he claims he took on other planets that are directly lifted from books that we know, yeah. that we can prove? I've asked people about that. Yeah, well, and how do you feel? I'm asking you about well, it. Well, here's what I heard, and it's not only that. It's pictures of the Palladians themselves that have turned out to be a couple of girls in a Dean Martin show or something kooky like that. Right. 
Right. The, the what I heard was that Billy Meyer has had 13 assassination attempts, and a lot of them have been documented, and a lot of other people present. You've we, seen these documents. Well, the point I'm saying, I want to get the documents. I want to answer the question first. Okay. okay. The, the reason I say that is because there's a lot of things around Billy that is extraordinary by any measure. Now, when it comes to these photographs, it seems clear to me, and, and everyone else has looked at it, that he has not been left alone by people who want to discredit him. So the story that I got, and I know some of his photographs are interesting, some of them look like a child did it, some of them are blatantly uh, like a, an actual photograph of a picture or something, and they say what happens is they slip these pictures in, and they do it to discredit him, and I think that's an interesting theory, and I don't discount either side. These pictures are put up by his organization, his current emails. No, they're put up by him, and Billy is not the sharpest tool in the shed when it comes to photographs, or photography for that matter in general. He had one camera, it was broken, it was stuck on one aperture, he would go and he would come back from these crazy trips, go to the, the local chemist, look up his photographs, and then the world and then the world would grab hold of them. Now, it's quite possible that some of these things were tinkered with or some of these things were put in. I'm not saying that explains it. I'm saying that's a theory that I heard that I thought was interesting. But his own American representative, Michael Horn, throws out those very photographs as the evidence that Billy Meyer is the real deal. Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know what he throws out, but personally, I mean, I've spoken with well, him. Well, we do know, and we're telling you. Yeah. This is what's put forward yeah. as images that he represents as being his photographs, mm. and it's genuine. And we talk about the Talmud of M. Manuel, mm. however you want to, I'm not going to get right on the pronunciation there, but... but yeah. But um, in the same breath, the man says he's the reincarnation of Christ. <laughs> so I just want to, like, you know, get clear here. You're only at the tip of the iceberg. It's, he, he doesn't claim he's just the reincarnation of Christ. All right. He's the Fill us in. He's the reincarnation of, Mo, of uh, Moses. Moses. Part of the waters. He's the reincarnation of Muhammad. Eartha Kitt. Muhammad. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix. What else? Aren't you good? Eartha Kitt's still alive, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I think Elijah. Although I think he's, he's one of no, Elijah. Now look. So on a reasonable level. All right. When you hear horse shit like this, do you have any internal filter that kicks in and says, you know, if it smells like horse shit, maybe it's not halva. That's what I'm saying. I mean, like, in other words, like you get the same feeling when you watch Fox News. Well, me personally, yeah, I mean, I, I'm aware enough to know a lie when I see it, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a New Yorker, native New Yorker. I lived around people who, grew up around people who were bullshit artists. So, yeah, you, I think native New Yorkers have a certain ability to distinguish, and I'm just being, you know, prejudiced here. But, you know, when, when, when there's someone, for example, like Jesse Marcel Jr. tells a story about handling materials when he was 11, right? I have no reason not to believe the man. The, the man is clearly, in my opinion, trustworthy. I don't get the sense that this is a guy who's spinning a story because he's positioning himself as anything but 
an 11-year-old kid that handled material and says, this was odd stuff. I think it's very interesting that later in his life, he went on not only to become a doctor, but someone who investigated Air Force crashes. That to me is fascinating. I don't think it's an accident. I think there must be something to do with his father, that event, that day, whatever happened in, in July of 1947, which I don't think we'll ever really know what ever really happened. It's too far away. But when we're talking about the Meyer case, and we're talking about a person who, by his own admission, has a, a, a pretty sordid history, and, and Jacques Vallée, who went to Switzerland, who visited Billy Meyer, who did the actual research, comes up with the profile of a man who essentially invented his whole past. Now, again, not to completely indict the guy, but if you're the kind of person that is happily inventing a past, to me that says something about intent. You mean it's kind of the way Hillary Clinton talks about circling in under sniper fire? Sure. Right. Well, that's nothing new in this world. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to a proving case, you're right. You should go out and skeptical, go inch by inch. When you're in a radio show, sometimes people want to hear someone and decide for themselves. Sometimes they want to get the measure of it. Sometimes they want to hear the story and say, you know what? I don't think so. Or, you know what? I'm not sure. Either way, as far as the radio goes, or as far as I do, you tend to want to sort of bring people on. It's not only the people that you can prove that were exactly true 100% did that. And you're in this field. I don't know how many people you did this guy. You can only really put one on the same ground so many times. So for radio, it's interesting to hear the stories and decide for yourself. Would you have on people that you knew were hoaxing? <laughs> like Billy Meyer? Well, I mean, like whoever. I mean, whoever it is that you knew was in it. In other words, like I talked to Tim Banal, who also runs another podcast, and he okay. says he's really into the personalities behind the things. Because he doesn't think that there's a truth that you're ever going to get to. Right. So he likes personalities. However, he will not endorse yeah. or put on somebody that he believes is a charlatan. Right, right. He'll put on somebody he thinks is crazy. No, he won't put on somebody yeah, he thinks anybody, is a so, so that in effect you're a paranormal paparazzi. It's like you go around, is Ashley Simpson pregnant or not? Decide for yourself. Is Billy Meyer, you know, Look, the it's an alien nipple. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, then you're not really a journalist. Well, have you, are, are you? It's what Nori said. No, no, no. You're, you're, I, I think I understand your position, but it's what Nori said, which is... You That's on, really funny. You know, talk about journalism. Let's look at the measure of journalism today. No, let's talk about the denotation of the word, of what the word journalism is. Yeah. And it's really in a, supposed to be yeah. someone who's trying to represent the truth. Right. But that now has become someone's own subjectivity, and there is no Right, there's no longer objective truth. Yeah. Now what there is is, okay, here's a story, you make up your own mind, right? That's what you're saying. So, in essence, you don't care whether the guy is bullshitting or not, because if it's a good story, it makes for good radio, right? Actually, you're, you're kind of extrapolating the simplistic uh, sort of statement. And I understand how you could do that, you could stretch it that way, but it's really not that. There's other measures and criteria that go into choosing any game. Well, hold on a second. We're just talking about differences of show style. Like Nori said, it's basically what you just said, and it's all about leaving up the imagination of the people, and, and I get that. Right. The question is, now, Dave and I, I, you know, I'm a bit more of a carniac, but I try to sort of do 
basically the same thing because I'm also an experiencer and I actually give a shit. And so I want to get to the bottom of this in some sense. So, and I think Dave's show does it more, which is to take the skeptical line. So it's not really, even if that means not getting a lot of guests, it's not really about leaving up the imagination. It's about let's see if we can't pinpoint some facts here and separate the BS from the not BS. But even with your style, let's forget about you know what's good for your show. You personally. Do you personally believe the Meyer case? I have spoken to what's the fellow's uh, name? That, uh, Michael Moore. Michael Moore. I've spoken to him a couple times. I spoke to one of the students who also knows a little thing about it. I spoke to Shirley McLean. This is all over a course of years, by the way. Who was involved in it at one stage, and she's actually photographed in, in the book that they put out. Because she made a visit to Billy back in back in the day. And of course, Jim Del Toso knows a thing or two about it. From these variety of sources, what I've got is probably what most people get, is that you hear he's a cult leader, you, you see the pictures of the photographs, you hear stories from his ex-wife, you know, saying everything's crazy. You hear, you hear reports that there's a radar installation above the hill where he lives, and they're detecting all these UFOs, uh, you know, high number around his area. You hear all of these things, and it's just too deep and too wide to figure out on your own. I could spend hours and years investigating it to come up with an idea, but I simply I can't do that. You know, Rob, we talk about hearing stories from people. It's interesting how our culture works. Yeah. I hear from retailers every October, November, and December... That there's a guy in a red suit that comes through your chimney and brings you gifts if you've been good. <laughs> now, you know, they represent it as reality. And you're not even supposed to tell kids, well, no, it's horse shit. Um, but at a certain point, a sentient, aware being can look at something and go, you know, I know that babies don't come from storks. It's a good story. It's more colorful than, you know, pulling a baby out of a woman's vagina. But in the end, it's bullshit. And, you know, then there's the actual birth that happens. And, gee, there's reality. Is it pretty? No, reality often isn't pretty. Those of us who don't do radio, I don't do radio. My buddy Jeff Ritzman doesn't do radio. We're people who have seen odd things more than a few times. And we want to actually get a handle on attempting to understand it, if this is even possible, but attempting to understand it. And when we get lumped in to people like the Billy Myers, then it becomes personal. Ah, right. That's when the lines have been crossed. But what we're engaged in is an effort to understand. And the process of understanding often is one of elimination. Like I like to say, you've got signal, you've got noise. And the noise usually is much more substantial than the signal. So you deploy a series of methods to strip away the noise, not even assuming that when you get to the signal, you'll know what it is. When Jeff and I look at images of supposed UFOs, and we strip away the, this is a bird, this is dust elements on the lens, 
Yeah. <laughs> keep, keep going. I'm going to take off. Well, let me tell you, when I go to the doctor, I don't want to hear it could be these five things. You decide which one it is. I don't want to hear that. I want to know what do I have and what do I do to take care of it. Say it truly is the new journal. picture of Billy Meyer, if we want to call it that, which is, you know, porn and a couple others probably, are really mischaracterized not only, you know, experts that, that that's normal person would know, but even those in ufology areas that a lot of people would know from certain things but not from others is being misrepresented as well. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hearing through everything that's being said. If it's misrepresented from both sides, you know, the, the, the ones that they claim are on their side validating things aren't, and the ones that... You know that, that you know, like uh, uh, Post and, and you know these kind of people didn't, but they're represented as they did too. So it's kind of like this both, you know, it's, it's both. Well, it's a web of deceit. That's you're trying to find truth in the Inquirer, the Star, the you know the Globe, all those magazines at the checkout. Well, but then we yeah, hear, you're done. What does it matter? It's radio. It's entertainment, yeah. which, frankly, I find deeply insulting. That is like saying that Fox News is not news, it's entertainment. Right. Well, when they show bloated dead bodies, any sick fuck that wants to call that entertainment is demented. And, you know, this is just sort of the baseline of any kind of an ethical stance. You know, genocide, like, like the gentleman who presented this morning said, you can never put a positive spin on genocide. It's just evil. Period. Some things, I mean, you know, some people say there are necessary lies. It's my personal opinion that someone who has clearly, and, you know, if you're not up to date on this, I can tell you this, sir, yeah. that the Billy Meyer situation is presented, like Michael Horn says, forget the photos, forget everything else, look at the prophecies. And we've already gone down the list of those, debunking them one after the other like a bad nightmare. So basically, what I said to you is, is actually accurate. In order to become an active participant of this cult, you have to devote a certain amount of your income. You have to pay their engagement in tithing. That's what's going on. It's in their own documentation. It's right there, okay? I'm not making this up. This is reality. You've got these fake photographs, which they only validate as fake if someone like Jeff or myself throws them up against the wall. They say, well, it's the men in black, which is like saying, you know, it's it's Santa came and took the cat away, and that's why the cat's not here, because Santa's got it in the bag. I mean, you know, well, is it possible? I don't know. There could be a overweight guy that came into the house, broken with a red suit and a bag and a white beard, grabbed the cat, put it in the bag, and walked out. No presents. <laughs> just took the no. Cat. Just took the cat, which some people you might see as a present. God knows. <laughs> oh, no more litter box to clean up. It's all a point of view. But as far as the cat's concerned, yeah. the cat's hungry. Where's its goddamn food? And the fat guy's not giving it food because the fat guy's eating the cat food because he's a little sick in the head. All right. The bottom line is, what Rob was saying before, was basically that, well, you got to put any story on if it's good radio, and so maybe good radio has nothing to do with 
quest for understanding the truth. It's kind of sad in a way that at a time when we have these advanced communications uh, methodologies like the internet, that the bulk of what's on there is essentially contrived or nonsense or lies. Maybe that says something more about yeah. the human condition than the ability of the technology itself. Maybe not. The first one's right. So, you know, this is why when I hear that, well, things make for good entertainment, it's kind of like the idea of killing is entertainment, yeah. which in our culture is pervasive. Kids are brought up killing things on video games. It's entertainment. And look, it's entertainment without any kind of cost. You know, oh, you get killed, well, you just revive, and you'll be back tomorrow to play. A lot of kids that were shipped over to Iraq were brought up on video games, and immersed in that situation, still play the game of externalizing the trauma that they go through when they take their first life. And that's why, what did the Army say? 300,000 of these kids now have serious mental illness. Half of them are being told, well, it was a pre-existing condition. You had that when you went in. Really, you motherfuckers. And why'd you let them in to begin with? It's a game where the people who pay the price are the people at the bottom rungs. You know, the rest of us. And the people sitting on top, well, you know what? It's kind of like the Wall Street trader that doesn't care whether the market's up or down. They make their money on the commissions, on the trades. So whether you're losing money or you're making money, they don't give a shit. They cash out their commission. They're always making stuff. And unfortunately, this realm of interest, perhaps one of the greatest mysteries that, we, that we're facing now as a civilization, the question of what this is, has been marginalized into, well, we need to promote what is good entertainment, because that's what the medium is about. I mean, to hear that radio is entertainment, I think is uh, really disrespectful to the potential of the medium. It's like what happened with TV. Television was supposed to be this great enabling thing, and what's it being used for? Well, you know, peddling bullshit. And so, is that something we should just go... And, and, and so the problem is, people go, well, gee, that's the way it is. So, what comes next? The dismemberment of babies? And then we'll be told, well, that's the way it is. I guess if you're in, you know, uh, let's see, Haiti, that's been a reality, and that's the way it is, so you just deal with it. Well, look at Dauphur. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. Iraq, that's the that's way it the is. That's the way it is. Afghanistan. My pursuit of numbers and analysis is not to find out if the Billy Meyer case or Joe Schmo's case is true or not. It's not to find out whether or not extraterrestrials come here or not. It's to find out why are extraterrestrials coming here and hiding. If we find out that the Billy Meyer case is true, we won't find out why extraterrestrials are coming here and hiding. And even if we found out that extraterrestrials are coming here and we know why they're coming here and hiding, it won't really teach us how to be better people to each other, nor will we know if there's life after death, angels, saints, avatars, etc., and those aspects of the human condition actually interest me more. Therefore, over in the extraterrestrial aspect, I do numbers and I take no position other than here's the numbers. Here's what else could be found out. But consider someone that goes to a doctor and the doctor sends the blood off to a lab. And the person who's analyzing the blood stops the person on the way out. Says, Excuse me, before you go see your doctor, let me tell you what I think's wrong. I don't do that. It goes from the investigator to me. 
back to the investigator who interprets my results and carries it on. Occasionally, I will say something or I'm asked about something characterized about what I think are the choices that it could be. One of the choices is extraterrestrial spacecraft, but if it's a small object, it doesn't mean that it's a scale model. There could be small aliens. You know, if we go to another planet, are they all going to be our size? They're going to be bigger? They're going to be smaller? Where are they going to be? So many issues to, to contend with. Yeah, but the string. The string <laughs> on the top. On the puppet string? Is thing? the string connecting them to the mothership yeah, up in right. orbit? That's right. I uh, used to get concerned about when I would say I found no evidence of a hoax, what that would mean to the investigator who's telling it to the witness. How are they going to spin that? How much money are they going to try to make? How much are they going to try to sell it to? So I stopped even allowing my name to be used unless it was with the investigator and two media people at the same time, and we review the process. We go through the process. And even with Tony Ortega, I went through the process. He had made up his mind in advance. There's no such thing as spectrum analysis. So he never really went into it. It was all like it was all made up to begin with, so why should I even go in there? And that happens a lot. You, you wouldn't want the patient to ask the person doing the blood test, what do all these mean? What does interleukin mean? What is mitochondria? What is ATP? What does this mean? What does that mean? Never. In fact, you even want the patient to ask the doctor that. You want, like you said, what do I have? Right. And sometimes it's not even what do I have, it's what do I do? Is it a pill or is it a knife? You know, that's basically the first starting choice, let alone preventative medicine. But in the case of the blood, you can't analyze the blood and say that someone is okay within the parameters of the test that you did and they go away and they get sick within the parameters of what you had. Or you can't say, I uh, spotted a rare thing here, told the doctor, the doctor treated this person, they went out and killed someone. It takes more than one person or two or three to make a decision about something that's so mission critical. So from my point of view, I do the numbers. I do the lab analysis, and if I don't get a match in the database, then it's an unknown. And I'm adding to the database all the time. It's like, what's the test procedure? What is it that you, two categories, subjectively, what is it that you saw? Or objectively, what software did you run? What data did you get? Can we repeat it over and over again, like fingerprints? If I run the same blood test as he ran, I get the same test, he's got it. But what if they did a test and I did a test, and they don't even match at all. This guy thinks he's got ptomaine poisoning, and I think he's got brain cancer. But that goes into, in terms of good research. That's yes. That's talking about validity and reliability. That's a key and thing. And that's yeah. it, and you're triangulating your data, right. and you can repeat and re find your I results again and again. But we and only, that's we what only have the data. We can't test the data. Nobody pays for it. And I can only donate so many $10,000, $20,000 take a tax write off on it, but I do have to keep track of the hours. If I'm paying my guys and I'm running my gear and all that, the $400,000 that I've spent on lab gear and over $200,000 I've spent on, uh-oh, this guy can't pay his hotel bills on his event here, oh, can't pay all his expenses for his... And I 
I think you don't get paid because there's no value given to the work you do. Oh, it's about. I know, but I think people see it. And if I don't do it, Jim Delatoso is an asshole because he won't test my stuff. And how many hours do I have to put in? Five? Ten? Thirty? Per case? How many hours do you put in the Billy Meyer case? Who knows? Yeah. Probably more than that. Who knows? Yeah. Right. And at some point, if you prove it correct, if you prove it false, not one person is going to come and thank you. Not one. I've gotten a few, actually. Yeah. <laughs> in the overall thing, it comes down to your mom and dad are going to die or your daughter's going to grow up. And what do you tell them about what's real for experiencers or to people that happen to have that experience? That's what it really is. You try to talk to you know the person that pushed you out of the room about an experience that you had because you want that person to have that experience because it's gonna it's gonna help them inside. We generally we think it's gonna help someone inside. We hope it you know, about they, that. They have that perspective. But the real thing is what, what is the art? Of, of, of dealing, I don't know if y'all have kids or not, but I've got an eight-year-old daughter. I'm her only parent, you know, and trying to do. manage, you know, a kid into uh, what, what's real and, and, you know, whether it's playground politics or what will it be like. I'm 59. She's going to be nine a couple weeks when I'm dead, okay? <laughs> uh, if you're only 14, here's how you should behave, okay? And here's what's coming and, and, and what what is all true. And, you know, at family reunion, Unions, aren't you dealt, some, dealt with someone like us, the crazy people? You know, you had... <laughs> and if, if you disprove that case, it doesn't make you any less crazy. That's if true. you prove any other case, it makes you not in good company, certified crazy, okay? It's an unusual situation in that no one polices it, no one finances it. So why did you get involved with it? Did you see a UFO and you're looking for an answer to what it is? Uh, yeah, I did. On the same day, exactly the same day, as in Joe Dirk, that he got left at the Grand Canyon. <laughs> August 17, 1979. Yeah, it's the same day as in the Joe Dirk movie. It's just, it's just unusual. It's the same, same, same day. But uh, it was a really, it was a really strong circumstance. I'd already been involved in looking, uh, doing an analysis process for a while, but I got, you know, really deeper involved. And the photographs are no longer important to me. Like it's the guy that knows the guy that knows the guy that saw the report. I want to talk to someone that had an experience. I want to talk to a thousand of them, and five hundred of them are lying, and three hundred of them made it up, and two hundred are mistaken, and fifty of them. On drugs. It only takes one, one person, one series, one fact, and no. What do they have to? So the pictures, yeah, I even try to avoid them. What's the best circumstance that happens? We validate it. They go make a lot of money. I'm not trying to take their money. I don't take money for this. Or if we don't validate it, I might have passed on something that's really good or missed something, or I caught somebody. And then you're an asshole. Then I'm an asshole. I've caught a bunch of people. You know, you haven't seen the list of people I've caught. Ditto. A couple hundred. <laughs> and I'm an asshole. A couple hundred. Most of the time. Yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> so, you're that anyway. Yeah, well, I know. Well, give us an example of someone you caught fabricating an image. Yeah, this guy, I uh, forget his name, uh, it was last uh, two years ago in Phoenix. He had uh, 
uh, come to town. He's worked with some local people there, and he had photograph, a video of a round spaceship, and uh, was promoting it on television stations, selling the DVD, and uh, I, I analyzed the uh, subcarrier with a microscope. UFOTheater.com. Yeah, it sounds like it could have been. And uh, one of the things I Brian Bassett. What's his name again? Bassett. B. Yeah, yeah, Bassett. That's it, Bassett. So, with video, I analyze the vectroscope, waveform monitor, and see when you when you gen lock or overlay or digitize, go into a computer and come back out, you've changed the time base. Sure. And by seeing, and every time... That's the whole point of a time base, correct? Right. And, but you can still have the notches are there from the switching head. Mm-hmm. So you can see that it, was, it came in on high eight... It was gen locked. Hmm, looks like it was a Targa board at 32. We can really analyze and find out, but it, it was very clearly, it was a rock solid signal that um, the original image uh, had been digitized, overlaid, gen locked. There was no blooming on any of there was just we, we demonstrated he, he was going to come in and have us do the analysis um, with TV cameras there he refused to come he said we were liars he said all this stuff and uh, caught him and then he denied it months and months later he admitted that he had done it and he had done it to prove that he could get away with it people were foolish yeah there you go uh, he spent all the money on me yeah I don't know <laughs> but um, he's just there was one guy that sold a bunch of stuff and you know, we got to stop so we were trying to get him to stop selling. I wasn't trying to get him to do anything. I was following the request of an investigator that said, Can you handle I didn't know who he was, I didn't know the name of the guy. I don't know the name of the people when I get the stuff. It's by date and investigator case number. That's it. Did you ever look at anything out of Gulf Priest? No. No, it's, I mean, somebody else was working on that and not high resolution enough stuff and wasn't asked by an investigator to work on it. I'm not an investigator. I'm a lab. So I don't pick up a case and go out and investigate it. It's not my occupation. to you. If someone asks me, and then I may pass on it. Uh, pass it on to somebody else. And it, it depends on, I mean, media I pass all the time. I passed on $30,000 from day so what He ran like a girl. Excuse me, I'm a girl. I did not run. You're a woman, baby. So, so Jim, your feelings about being used as a validation for the idea that the body of Billy Myers well, photographic wrong. evidence. Be using me. Nobody should be using me. As soon as they do that to me, I, I mistrust anything else that they do. So you would say categorically you don't trust Michael Horn at this time? I don't trust what he's done with what, oh, seemingly he's doing with my stuff, so why should I trust anything else he's doing? It's not appropriate for what he claims is the source of the material. It's out of character. It doesn't flush. It doesn't wash. If what he says he's representing as truth from Billy Meyer 
has to be butted up against lying about his relationship with me than he does Billy Meyer in the world a disservice. If only a shred of what Billy Meyer said is true, that shred should be allowed to be true, not discredited the rest of it, okay? This what I said, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Most every good UFO case that's ever happened to people go crazy about it or somebody covers it up or something happens or the story gets changed or and, and maybe they had something to do with it. If they actually exist and are coming here to characterize that, and it seems like that's what's happening, but I've never met one. I've seen really bizarre objects up close a couple occasions. I've had unusual things happen, but they hide, you know, they hide. They, they behave like an enemy. The only conclusion I can have is that they're leaving our destiny up to us of running insane, you know, running amok with nuclear waste and a bunch of other possibilities that we could be applying to ourselves, like ultimate creativity, which we have, we have free will, we can, we have spiritual potential, pick a palette, you know, Eureka, uh, Essenes, Ascetic, whatever you want, pick one, they're all available. I don't think they have that, because if, if the stories are true and all the data from abductees, I'll talk to them with telepathy. Always talk to with telepathy. That would be if they all have telepathy with each, with each other, which means that they all know the same thing at the same time, which implies no personal growth. They all move as a group together. No one can. Oh, maybe they've all morphed into the one. Maybe they, maybe and that's what we're going to morph into, but we've morphed into the wrong one. Well, you know what? Here's the thing, though. So it seems like that's the direction. Yeah, if everybody has telepathy, lying doesn't work. I know, so that's what I'm saying with them. Right. Right, lying doesn't work. And maybe there are some benefits to that, but spiritual advancement doesn't happen either. So maybe some of the legends of Well, well spiritual advancement true. as gauged by human validation of the spiritual life? See, it's, a, it's an opportunity given. I'm just saying that. Yeah. For whatever reason they come, that may be part of it. And if there is there telepathy but no spiritual life, is there spiritual life? Where does it all interconnect? I'm trying to see a, a bigger picture, or just go to work every day, come on, watch TV, play. But isn't it a possibility? Which I like that if you have spiritual beings yeah. that are highly advanced that have telepathy that have reached that state of evolution, maybe they hide in the same way if we were in a jungle full of velociraptors, yeah, right. we would hide as well. I think they think we're dangerous. You think we're dangerous, potentially? Yeah, I think they think we're dangerous. I mean, it's not a pleasant thing to basically... No. Not a pleasant revelation, but if anybody, if, this, if anybody looks at the history of humanity with any sense of humility and honesty, yeah. it's a pretty brutal time. Yeah. Even today. philosophy? Well, yeah, well, of course. I mean, here we are with all this technology, and, you know, what do we use this technology for? Well, you know, basically, let's make a weapon. How many people can we kill? Yeah. I mean, you brought up nuclear waste, right? I mean, oh, let's take the, the, the let's take the great potential we have and try to figure out not how to enrich ourselves as a species, but know how to enrich enrich ourselves as maybe an individual who wants a huge amount of power. 
enrichment not in terms of the spiritual potential but the material potential yeah maybe the individual that's a good one too material enrichment I mean pack people can do it and make well, money and give it away and build museums and libraries and theaters when they build museums and libraries and theaters and well, all that but find a cure did you see John Edward uh, the other night on uh, on the Colbert Report no, no. He, he did the Edward you know, the word with the real meaning. Yeah. yeah. Saying that, that if anyone wants to get my vote for president, they need to buy me a jet ski. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. My real drive is I got plenty of money. I've made a lot. I've been everywhere. I've done everything. But my wife won't help me have a jet ski. That's what I really want in life. And he said, life after death? I don't know. Jet ski? Yes. <laughs> it was just too funny the way he characterized it. I need to go back in there. Right. That whole thing waking up. You all want to go back in? Jim, thank you. We're not done. Are we? Is that it? Are you dismissing me? No, I'm not dismissing no, you from now right now. No, actually, we're going to do is we're going to have you come on the Paracast where we can actually hear what you're saying instead of the background noise. Right.